here. Welcome to Motorcycles and Misfits. Coming to you from AIM Expo in Las Vegas. Yes, sunny Las Vegas, Nevada, USA. So, um, we're here. Well, why are we here, Jim? Motorcycle song? <laughs> <laughs> why are we here? Again. Motorcycles, gambling, and debauchery. Well, let's start with who is here. Hey, everyone, this is Liza. Next to me, we have Emma Darling. And then Naked Jim. Thumper John. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good product placement there. Yeah. Um, you guys, we've got so many people to meet and see, things to do. Um, a lot of interviews to do. I'm going to stop you there, Liza. This is Sin City, <laughs> and I intend to behave very badly, so there. So we're not going to share everything that we do. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think what we're going to do, I think there's some really cool people I want to get some interviews with Y'all. and some products to talk about. Y'all. Um, so why don't we hit the floor? Chinese motorcycles, yay. And let's go do it now. And be with people again. <laughs> this will be something. I remember one day I'm looking at Instagram and I'm looking at motorcycles and I see this thing ride to food and I immediately text Liza and I said I found our people because I think recently we had come back from Gizditz Pie Ranch in Watsonville California for a because we that's our destination tacos pie whatever it might be so we were at this top 100 uh, women in motorsports uh, gathering earlier today, and I look across the room, and who do I see? My hero, Stacy Wilt of Ride to Food. So, hey, Stacy. How's it going? It's going great, <laughs> thanks. So happy to have you here and talk Definitely, and, and talk, chat with you. Yeah. So, um, Ride to Food, there's a lot to talk about there, but probably best, let, why don't you describe what Ride to Food is? So, Ride to Food is not Guy Fieri taking people to Flavortown. <laughs> that is always the first thing people think is I'm going to be like looking at my pinkies talking about hot dogs and whatever else, right? Ride to food is what anyone on a motorcycle does. It is about motorcycle travel, mm-hmm. riding 500 miles to go get a piece of pie on a weekend, seeing the sights and sounds along the way. You know, you can take the interstate to get somewhere, but what if you knew a scenic route that had cooler stuff to see? Mm-hmm. That's what ride to food is about is enjoying the experience of motorcycling and everything it encompasses. So my job is to help educate people on those things because there's so many people that ride that just don't know about certain areas of the world or the mm-hmm. state or a city or whatever right and so my job is to help people understand that and see things on the road yeah and, and i know you're located in the middle of the country and i think you underscore or underline the word travel because you get around you know i look <laughs> at your youtube or your youtube and i look at your instagram and you're all over the place right so it's amazing and you know, one of the many reasons I would say to encourage you to check out Stacy's stuff is you get a lot of good practical advice. Not only, and it's mostly for distance traveling, but it's from the female perspective, which right. is, as we know, sorely lacking from the motorcycle industry. So, like, how do you approach it as a female motorcyclist trying to promote it? And I know you're trying to promote it for everyone, but how do you go about that? You know, I just, I just do it. Like, I, so when I first started riding 10 years ago, there weren't a lot of women riding, especially my age. I'm 30. So I was one of the younger women around that road. Um, and when I wanted to start riding long distance, people told me I was crazy, like, you're going to get kidnapped or this and that. And I'm just a stubborn chick. So I was like, okay, I'll prove it to you. I won't. And I just started riding long distance, and I just started doing it. Really? Yeah. So, okay. Uh-huh. So what was your first bike? 
I had a Harley Davidson 48 Sportster. Okay, and you've been a big American V-Twinner yes. ever since. Yeah. Yes, all I've owned is Harleys. Uh, when I first started working in the motorcycle industry, I worked in Harley Davidson dealerships. Okay. So that is really where I got the street bike bike bug. I grew up wanting to ride dirt bikes. Never have, not yet, I still want to. <laughs> but since I started working in Harley dealers, that's where my core lies. However, I am interested in all bikes. If I could, I would own an ADV, I would own a sport bike, I would have everything. Well, there's still time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so one of the things I really love also you do is your blog, right? And I've read through it, and it's great motorcycle tips, but it's also great food writing. So Liza and I like to eat. So Liza and I are each going to pick a food or two and ask you where we should ride. Because we, we ride. So if I was going to go say, where is the best fried chicken? Where should I ride to? Aishins in Oklahoma. So what is, is it? Aishins. Aishins. It's uh, just north. Yep, just northwest of Oklahoma City. And what does what makes their chicken distinct? For it's us just, to ride three thousand miles or whatever. <laughs> I don't know what it is about that place, but it, it's just like very old school. Like it's a thing you do there. Okay. It's just a thing you're supposed to do when you're in that area of Oklahoma or, or Oklahoma City. Got it. Okay, Gotta get the fried okra too. Oh, I love fried okra. Yeah. Is it so, the little pieces like yes. sliced up? Yeah. Money with cornmeal and flour. If you're wondering. A little salt and pepper. Yeah. All right, Liza, what's your food? I'm going to go with a turkey burger. I've never had a turkey burger. That's the That's correct not answer. Homemade. Hamburger. That's the correct answer. Oh, a hamburger? Right now, I would go to Cops in Wisconsin. They have a couple different locations around Milwaukee. And if you're Harley riders, obviously go to the HG Museum, too. That's mm -hmm. another cool thing to do there. Cops has amazing custard and amazing butter burgers. Like, oh, they're Ooh, so good. A butter burger. Yes, I'm in. That's yeah. a twofer. <laughs> Sold. Okay, last question, and probably the most important, pie. Where do we ride for pie? Arkansas. Oh, you have yeah. to ride to Arkansas. I have had so many amazing pies there. Um, Eureka Springs, there's Mud Street Cafe. They have a peanut butter pie to die for. It is so, so good. <laughs> <laughs> I could like taste it right now. I can see it in front of me. Yeah, we may, have to, we may have to cut this short to go to go eat. I'm not sure. Um, so can, can I throw in one? Just not, I'm going to make a recommendation to you. So in the you know, Santa Cruz Mountains, which you're familiar with, Coralita Sausage. It's the best sausage at the little market, a little store with a picnic table across the street. It's a great ride in the hills and a destination. Now, is it near Boulder or where in the mountains is it? Uh, no, it's Santa Cruz Mountains. Okay. Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz Mountains between Santa Cruz and Watsonville. Oh, okay. Cool. So in that part of the Central Coast. Perfect. Yeah. So enough about food. So what I really think is cool and probably one of the re main reasons you're here is you are an inspirational top woman in motorsports. So like, you know, the advice you would give, because we, we have a very diverse listening group, right? Absolutely. And um, and a lot of people are new to riding, right? Motorcycles and Misfits, we teach people how to wrench on old bikes, keep them on the road, and, you know, and, and how to ride safely. What are the big tips? Because 10 years ago um, was a long time, but you know, you, you didn't grow up like Brittany riding bikes. So to empower someone, you know, what encouragement do you typically give you know, women, more or less, but new riders in general, like to get out on the open road and, and go by yourself all the way across the country? Practice makes perfect. I mean, it really, really does. It, you're not going to be great on day one or day 10 or day 100. Every day is a learning experience. Every day is a new day to get better. Um, and always push yourself just right there to where you're maybe not in your comfort zone completely, but not in the danger zone. 
If you're riding with a bunch of people that are highly experienced riders and they're just leaving you in the dust, meet them at wherever you're going, whether it's a gas station or the next red light or anything, but just ride your own ride and get to where you're comfortable riding and every day just take it a little further. Great sage advice from a sage motorcyclist and eating aficionado. And I, I, can't, I can't skip this opportunity to say me and Liza have designed our own and this is a two-free for you, so you're lucky. <laughs> We can teach you how to ride dirt bikes. It's an, an adventure ride to food ride in uh, Santa Cruz County, Monterey County, and maybe touch San Benito County. San Benito. So if you want to explore the treasures of Central Coast eateries, we might have some tips. I'm idea booking my for you. flight in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we might be able to scare up a dirt bike for you too. You never cool. know. So with that said, how do people find all this information you've got out there? Uh, RideToFood.com. That'll be the blog. Uh, you can also go to YouTube.com slash RideToFood, Facebook.com slash RideToFood, and on Instagram, of course, it's just RideToFood. So cool. I keep it simple all across the board. <laughs> right on. Well, this is great. Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. It's rad to meet your food he motorcycle heroes, and they actually surpass your expectations. <laughs> so, Woo, yeah. Pass the test. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a high bar. <laughs> Anyway, thanks so much. It's been a hoot. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, y'all too. Thank you. All right. Good morning. It's a beautiful day in Las Vegas. And I am here with Jeff Zhang of SSR Motorsports. This is a great interview. I've been looking forward to this one. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. So, um... Before we even get started, tell us who you are within the SSR Motorsports brand. I am the general manager at SSR Motorsports. I handle all of the day-to-day -day sales, uh, marketing, operations, and uh, I've been with the company for the last seven years. My father owns the company, and uh, we've been in the industry for the last 20 years and we're celebrating 20 years this year so you know we got lucky here at misfits because we got the top dog right here so great i was amazed that the company's been going for 20 years i mean here in america you know we tend to leave quite a, a insular existence there are things going on outside america that we don't realize so Tell us a little bit about the history of SSR. You started as a domestic brand. Where are they made? So all of our products are made in China. Okay. Um, since the beginning of the company, we started with uh, pit bikes. So we're known for all of our pit bikes, uh, youth dirt bikes, all the way up to adults riding you know, 140cc kit-sized motorcycles, racing them on the racetrack. Um, throughout the years, we've added to the line. We have ATVs, UTVs, street motorcycles, and then we became the exclusive distributor for Pinelli uh, in 2016. Right, and I would love to talk a little bit more about Benelli down the road, but let's, let's concentrate on the SSR brand. So when did you start bringing bikes into America? At the beginning, just as pit bikes? So when did you make that decision and say, okay, we're gonna start doing street bikes? or bikes you can actually ride on the road? So we transitioned into uh, scooters first. Uh, this was in 2009, 2008, when the scooter market was booming. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we got into that first. After that, we started to slowly expand the line into full-size motorcycles, uh, full-size dirt bikes. And uh, we did have our own line of street bikes. That was One of them was the 125, 
Raspel, which was a Grom-sized unit of Minimoto. Right. And then we had a V-twin Buccaneer that was a, a 250ccs, a retro-looking scrambler type bike. Okay, can we talk a little bit about the Grom market? Because it's, it's very much its own thing. And the Grom and the Z125 has done very well for Kawasaki. Yeah. Um, what have you got in your product line? Is it just the Benelli now, or do you have an SSR in the Grom line? We had one called the Rascal. Right. Now it's a... Uh, Everything's transitioned to the Benelli, and we'll, yeah. we're going to focus on that model in a little while. Yeah. I mean, were there any particular challenges with the American market? It's a big market, and potentially it's very big. At first, for us, it's overcoming the, the stigma that Chinese products are, right. are not quality. Um, you know, you buy them once, once they break, you put them in the trash. Right. Uh, ever since my dad started the company, the vision was to have affordable products with good quality, uh, with good customer service. Right. So we've followed that throughout the years. And, uh, you know, through our dealer network, through the experience our customers have had, uh, it's, it's changed that image. Fantastic. And, you know, I've heard nothing but good reports about SSR brands. I wish I could say the same about other Chinese products. What about parts distribution? I mean, for somebody who's in the motorcycle industry, and funnily enough is struggling with Benelli parts now, but this is for a classic Benelli, parts are everything. Talk to me a little bit about parts distribution for people who want to take on an SSR franchise. So we, uh, we have an 80,000 square foot building in Southern California. All of our units and parts ship out of that location. Okay. Uh, we inventory 20,000 plus different part numbers. And uh, we have about 350 dealers across the U.S. Some will do parts shipping online. Some of them uh, will inventory it in the store. So, you know, customers can go to our website, look up a dealer, call the dealer, and the dealer will tell them, I can get you parts for any vehicle I sell. And how far back do you support bikes with parts? I mean, once a bike becomes 15 years old, do you really have to say, that's it, we can't support parts for this machine anymore? Or is it, is it something that you, go, you can get the earliest SSR you can still get parts for? So the, the cool thing about, so the company started all with pit bikes. And the cool thing about those are that came out of uh, people modifying dirt bikes into being able to ride it as an adult. So a lot of our parts now will fit on very old SSRs. Great. Yeah. Okay. And I'd like to walk around and talk a little bit about your products. We're going to stay away from the Benelli's for now because I want to treat those as their own thing. So show me around a couple of your flagship bikes right now. Because I've got to tell you, the quality of these things is absolutely superb. So at this show, we are announcing a couple new models and a few product updates. In the middle here, we have a 140R and the SR190R. Our top-of-the-line motorcycle uh, made for the racetracks. It's... Uh, MSRP on these are about $2,400 and $2,800. Um, you know, this has been our bread and butter. They're completely redesigned, new frame, new body panels, electric start motors. Right. So everything's been modern and updated. Okay, fantastic. And I see that they're both based on the flat single engine, you know, which goes back to the 
Hon- what I call the Honda Cub style engine, um, which has proven very, very reliable. And these are both youth bikes. So um, the age range target for the 140 is... So these bikes, they, they range from uh, a child that's into racing, that's racing, you know, growing up. And then we also have adults my size and adults sometimes too big for these bikes. Right. Racing them in race series. Okay. Very good. And I'm, it looks, they're, they're wonderfully made. I don't know, it's... John has dropped the video on this, so we're going to describe it. It's basically white plastic bodywork with a very bold graphic, nice red frame, the paint on the frame looks great, sandblast finished on the engine, everything looks very, very nicely finished. I think it's fair to say in the past, Chinese products, the fit and finish wasn't always the best. But this is Japanese standard as far as I'm concerned. Yes, we have very high quality standards. Uh, the factories that we make all of our units in in China. Right. We have our SSR employees live in those factories on the assembly line, inspecting every single unit that goes down the line. So we've made that quality inspection process a very important part of the business, and it's shown over the years. And remind me, so the price point on the 140? those are about $2,400 MSRP. And then this is... Uh, retail. retail. Uh, retail. Yeah. So, and yeah, oh, go ahead. on the 190, it's uh, uh, $2,900. I'm curious about the... Four, four, is this a 450 behind yeah, you? Because this is now competing with the, the Honda, right? So how does that compare? Jim here, who just bought a 450 Honda, I'm curious how it compares. So, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about this bike to break down power handling and of course price uh, I don't have the specs on top of my head but uh, for the 250 so in this segment we have a 250 a 300 cc and a 450 cc motorcycle at this show we're showing the 250 and 450 in an updated version that has fuel injection so both of these motorcycles have been around since 2015 2014 and uh it is not a race bike, so it's for it's for the guy that wants to ride the woods, wants to ride it, and uh, they can even take it to the hair scrambles. Not for the big motocross riders that's expecting their ten thousand uh, dollar Honda bikes. Um, but not many people can handle a four fifty, a true four fifty. So this is plenty of bike for them. It's got the quality, same quality, and uh, they can enjoy it for half the price. Yeah, and just a couple of things I noticed, I think, on the plus side is adjustable suspension, so fully adjustable suspension. Um, you know, like I said, it's, and it makes just as just about as much power as the Honda 450 in terms of horsepower, so pretty neat things. I was, I was surprised to see adjustable suspension, you know, for, and, and I'm, do we get to the price yet? How much? Uh, so the fuel-injected version, the new ones we're coming out with, 450 is uh, $59.99. Yeah. Wow, and almost the, half the price. Yes. Yeah. So do you foresee a... a uh, license plate one? Uh, th- that's something we've talked about for years, and uh, hopefully we can bring something like that because yeah, I love those type of bikes. I, I was about I to say, by the look on your face, yeah. it's something you've been asking <laughs> for. Yeah. It seems to me, just as an observer, and please correct me if I'm wrong in this, it seems that you're concentrating the off-road efforts on the SSR brand 
and then your street bikes are the Benelli brand. Is that largely true, or is there going to be some crossover? Uh, Could we see this as a Benelli with lights on it? No. No, okay. Yeah, so Benelli is a completely separate brand. Um, it, we're not owners of it. But so, you're caretakers of it? Yes, we are the distributors in the U.S. Okay. For the brand. Uh, speaking of which, can we jump to the TRK502? Because this is a bike that I personally was looking into... Um, as an option for me. Well, you're getting ahead of yourself, Lyda. Can we talk a little bit about the Benelli brand? Um, so Benelli has been a name that old fogies like me remember. And then they fell off the radar, really, at the end of the 1970s. Um, and you've brought, brought the name back. So Benelli is a, ve- is a very old Italian manufacturer. They, they go back to the earliest days of motorcycling. They have a very, very rich heritage of racing. A lot of people remember Benelli's for the Honda copies they did in the 1970s. They did a 500 Quattro, which was basically a copy of a Honda 504, but manufactured in the Italian way in the 756 and the 906. Um, All that went away, and here we are in the 21st century, and the name's back, and you've got it. So tell us a little bit about, is this still an Italian-owned company, that the bikes are made in China? Tell us a little bit about the company. So uh, the biggest manufacturer in China, called QJ, they purchased uh, the entire Benelli brand, the factory in Italy, uh, back in 2005. Um, since then, they've been working on tooling in China, getting that, uh, you know, all the technology into their Chinese factory. So, uh, in 2015, we became their exclusive distributor, and they had two motorcycles to start with a 300cc naked sport bike and a 600cc naked sport bike four-cylinder. And uh, so they've been in the U.S. since then. Uh, you know, it's been a while since they've been here. They've been, you know on and off, on and off uh, with the versions that were made in Italy. The prices were extremely high. Yes. So QJ has made all of these bikes uh, affordable for consumers and kept that same Italian engineering and design uh, within it. And I think it's fair to say that all of the Benelli's in their their own way have that Italian flair. Yes. so we'll start at the, and we're going to come to the TRK, Liza. She has been lusting after a TRK forever. It is but very let's popular. let's start off with the, with the Grom segment. Yeah. Because this is a very important segment in motorcycling today. This is ground zero for a lot of riders. They feel intimidated by larger bikes. So the Grom, the Z125 has done very well for Honda and Kawasaki, respectfully. So let's talk about this, because as far as I'm concerned, this is a player. This is as much up there as the other two. So tell us a little bit about your Benelli Grom Killer. Yeah, so this category is very special. It's got two types of customers. The type that wants a play bike, wants to outfit it with all the aftermarket parts, make it look flashy, make it their own. And then you also have the customers that are first-time riders, very easy to get into learning how to shift on a smaller bike right. and feeling safe about it. Right, and so, the small wheels, it gives it a certain amount of stability. Yes. Um, 
the colour is absolutely superb. I mean, it really draws you in. And I think the, the colour-matched wheels, are, to me, this is a far more appealing bike than a current Grand. I think it's better looking. It's got a more big bike look about it. I like the instrumentation. What's it going to retail at? So this one currently retails at twenty nine ninety nine, and it is uh, about three four hundred dollars less than the Grom. So just so you know, we've already committed to our dealer to buy two of these this year, because it goes up to one thirty five. I'm like, we were we were wanted bikes like these, and we're looking at all of them, and decided on the Benellis, and told the dealer, yeah, we're taking them uh, to do stupid stuff on. That's what which, it's for. Which dealer? Uh, this is our friend at Cleveland Moto in Ohio. Oh, okay. Yeah. He, he and even though he's across the country, he always takes very good care of us. Yeah. So let's go up the line. Um, again, this is a very, very important segment in motorcycling right now. It's the entry-level segment. So this is your 300? Yeah, this is 300 parallel twin. Okay. Um, it retails at $48.99. It's got the Italian styling to it, the same type of color pops as this 135 a trellis italian frame um, led headlights uh, lcd display so all of the modern looks the italian look for uh, much less on the price and re- did you say the retail on this already uh 48.99 48.99 and so this is for r3s the naked version of the r3 which i can't remember what it's called right now and there is a bunch in this segment. Well, I'm wondering how this could fit in the track bike segment also. As an entry-level track bike. Uh, versus like the Kawasaki 400. Th- this isn't for the track crowd. This is more for um, a daily commuter bike. Yeah. Uh, it is a, it's a longer wheelbase. It's a little bit heavier. But once you get it up to freeway speeds, it is a lot more stable than every other bike in the segment. So I have a quick question. I've been seeing more and more Benelli's. I'm curious, what has your growth been like in the last, like, three, five years? So, uh, in the last two years, the company uh, SSR has grown six times. The, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's, it is definitely a name we're seeing more and more. Still, just where we live in the San Francisco Bay Area, there's only a handful of places. Um, but I'd like to see them more. Uh, you want to keep going on to the... Well, I so. Try to contain your excitement. We're moving on to your favorite. Yes. TRK. Jeff, lead on, please, and tell us a little bit about your TRK. So, so I, I can, let me tell you a couple things, what I like about it. Like so, Emma, we talk about a midsize um, adventure bike. Yes. A KLR 650, the, uh, the Honda 500, CB, CB 500X. But one thing that's great about this is it comes with a lot of the accessories already on it. You guys have done a good job at that. Yeah. Um, including you can order it with the luggage, which what I've heard from dealers is is the best deal in town. Yes. For what you guys are charging for aluminum panniers. Aluminium, um, darling. So I was wondering if you can, yeah, talk a bit about what the goal market was for this bike. And, uh, and yeah, and some of the accessories you did decide to include. Yeah, so this... Uh this motorcycle comes in two versions, uh, a street motor, uh, street tire version for the daily commuters, and then you've got the knobbier uh, dual sport tires uh, for the guys that wants a little bit of adventure. Uh, it's got 
it's full of all the accessories that um, that you would have to pay extra for with the other brands. So it comes with the windshield. It comes with hand guards. Uh, it's got uh, engine crash guards on it, and for a thousand dollars, you can have all three top case and two side cases fully aluminum, uh, Benelli branded official uh, cases. Yeah, and these are pretty big cases too. These aren't small. No, they are. And the bike comes with ABS. Yeah, everything, everything you that we put on our our bikes to make them ready to go, the engine guards, everything. Did we say, what is the, the list price on this? Uh, you need to give me one second. I think we were Sorry all guessing, like, is it like around check. 75, 7, maybe? So the street version starts at 65.99, and the... Full, like, this is the, uh, the fully loaded... I'm going to make sure I get you the right uh-huh. numbers. I mean, it even has, like, the side deflectors off of the windshield. That is something, like, on my Africa 2, and I have to order extra, you know, no, I mean, or on the is BMW. Always, this is always the appeal of bikes like this, is the level of equipment, the bang for your buck you get, is really very, very appealing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sixty five ninety nine and uh, seventy ninety nine on yeah. the okay. off, off-world version. That is crazy. So has this taken off? Are you seeing the? Ex- are you hitting the expected sales numbers? Yeah. So we've uh, oh, we've done fairly well. Our dealers do stock this unit, um, so you know customers can call up their nearest SSR dealer and find out about the inventory availability. So we know it's difficult to find motorcycles right now, but our dealers do have motorcycles. Right. And the final model I want to talk about is just yeah, this yeah. fantastic looking thing is this machine at the end so please it's the first time I've seen one of these actually either in the flesh so the model we have in display here is the Leoncino Trail Uh, Uh, we have two versions the trail version with a little bit of knobbier tires uh, spoked rims and then we also have the street tire version with uh, uh, mag wheels is that the Leoncino on the fender? yes the lion that's the lion um I feel that this is aiming fairly squarely at the Ducati Scrambler market. Is that kind of where you're at with it? Yeah, so it's, it's got the vintage look to it, uh, the modern vintage look. Um, yeah, it's after that crowd of this, this Scrambler type. Very nice looking machine. And I saw... No. Maybe not. Yeah, no. Uh, I wanted to say, you know, thank you for being here. This is the largest exhibit. Yes. Here at AIM Expo this year, a lot of people didn't participate, didn't come, and Benelli SSR showed up in force. So I'm rooting. I'm rooting for you guys. I've been wanting to see these uh, affordable, fun bikes because it introduces more people to motorcycling when you make it more affordable. So I wanted to thank you for your time. Did you have any last questions? No, I don't. I think um, thank you for a very candid interview, Jeff. I wish you the greatest luck with your brand. These are fantastic motorcycles. And I urge you, if if you're in the market for a new bike and you've been considering a used Japanese bike, consider a Benelli or an SSR. Yeah, exactly. um, As a new alternative. I really think I'm... I'm really tickled with the quality. Yeah. So thanks for your time, Jeff. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. Thank you.
So, I'm here with LaShondra Rucker from Sport Bike Chic, LLC, and we had a great conversation yesterday about your line of clothes. I'm excited about it. One of the reasons is, is that, you know, my wife is just getting into riding, and she's like, dang, I can't find anything that's cute. And uh, so I stumbled on this. I'm like, hey, here we go. So I was, so you've got some real innovative products. Let's start with the jacket. Okay. Um, tell me about your jacket and your idea with the, with the shells and the different aspects of it. Awesome. So this is my, the latest patent pinning product from Sport Bike Chic. And I call it the SB Shell, partially because my ride name is SB. So and it's a shell product, sure. right? So essentially, you have all your, your protective armor, your, um, your protective lining on the inside. And then what happens is that you unzip it simply like what? Maybe less than a minute. Unzip it. Your inner portion of that um, of that liner comes out with mm -hmm. all your protective gear, and you're able to apply it to an, another product. Another shell looks exactly the same. It can be a different color. It could be a lighter weight. So it gives you a lot more functionality, a lot more flexibility, um, and versatility as a woman rider, right? And I guess the biggest piece of it, you know, you're able to save that closet space instead of actually having eight jackets of eight different yeah. colors. You can actually have one primary shell jacket and you can have in your shell in your um in your drawers or hanging up someplace else like four or five different color jackets that you can just interchange whenever you want or if you're going on a longer trip you want it to be stylish you can match it up and you can pair it but the goal is that you want to be able to give women more options mm -hmm. right yep. and i know i'm my 12 years of riding that i've seen i'm not going to say i've seen everything but i've seen a lot put <laughs> yep. it that way and one of the things that I can appreciate more um, in terms of in terms of um, putting clothes on women is really going to be about the likelihood of them wearing it, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes if you can't find what you're looking for and you have to go to the men's section, then you may not want to be able to do that, right? right? right. Or if you can't find a pair of jeans that fit, you know, protective jeans that fit, you're probably going to go to Old Navy or whatever and just get so you a pair. those jeans, tell me about your jeans because we were checking those out yesterday Absolutely. Too. So our jeans are actually in line with 100% Kevlar. It actually has the CE Level 1 armor that's included with it. The best part... One of my one of my favorite parts is the pockets, right? I don't know what it is about people. They don't really want to make pockets for us, but these are nice deep pockets, yeah. so it's functional. But they have stretch in there, so there's forgiveness. When it comes to um, the women in jeans, everyone's not going to fit the same pair of jeans the same way. So you find that when you have that stretch, there's that forgiveness forgiveness factor that's in there. And they have the little extra lip in the back, so when you lean over, mm -hmm. yeah, you don't have all that unintended exposure. Showing that tramp stamp. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. <laughs> I was going to be PC, but that's There you good. go. No, no, we ain't PC at, at <laughs> but, Motorcycles and Misfits. But at the same time, I mean, all our gear, it's really designed with women in mind. Some of the women needs in mind. And just like our tank purse, our patented tank purse, you know, I was sitting here looking around like, surely there must be something like this already because I was kind of frustrated trying yeah. to get back to the hotel with all these little bags and everything. And so I really wanted a purse as opposed to something a little bit more masculine. And that's how that kind of that idea came about. So it's essentially it's a purse that's magnetic. Absolutely. Like a tank bag would be, but it's more like a purse. Absolutely. Yeah. The flaps fold in when you take it off the motorcycle and you wear it as a crossbody. So I have a question. What is your best selling product so far? The jeans. The ah. jeans are absolutely I didn't realize how many women actually really needed jeans and wanted those jeans, but they really have a need for uh, protective gear because they want to people want to be able to ride yeah. safe. Sometimes you just don't have that option. And I think that's what gives them the most option. But then aside from that, our varsity jacket, people love the old school feel but it, feel of it. 
but at the same time, you still have that protective armor that's on the inside. You have the C level one, you know, that's included with it. But it's just a nice, comfortable yeah. jacket. And we'll have newer products that are coming out in the spring. But all of our, again, all of our stuff is really designed again with the woman rider in mind and some of our special needs. Yep. So a uh, couple things. So sizes you cover, you said the jeans are up to 20? Yeah, up to a size 22. So we go from zero up to size 22. We have a couple of different styles. One is the SBM, so it has a little bit more, um, you know, if you have a fuller waist. Yep. And the SB10 actually has more slimmer waist. So we're trying to do as much as we can for a couple That's options. Great. And then um, we're actually working on our petite line and our tall line. Great. So, awesome. Options. Website? Sportbikechic.com. And uh, they can buy from there? They can buy from there, absolutely. And I'll just give a pitch. Okay. Stumpy guys need love, too. <laughs> Come on, got to love the stump. I, will keep I have the same problem. <laughs> I will keep that in mind. All thank right. you so much. Hey, thank you. Guys. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay. They don't have the customer service, and that's where we hang our hat little tiny Roadrunner ad is Hey there, this is Naked Jim, and I am here at the AIM Expo in fabulous Viva Las Vegas. Dealer News has recognized 100 women in power sports, and I'm here with Brittany Olson, who, as I try to figure out a way to introduce her, I just came up with the moniker, the doer of many things. So Brittany, <laughs> pleasure to meet you. Thank you kindly for having me here today. Yeah, and what brought you here today? So the uh, luncheon did, where the uh, Dealer News gave us the top mention of being, you know, these top women of the motorcycling industry, which is, it's really nice, you know, to, to see not only just a select group of women, but it was such a diverse group of women, which I really liked. Every Everybody from the people that work in the offices or marketing that, you know, maybe don't get to ride or work on their bike as much as they'd like to, to the people who, you know, I could like look back and be like, oh yeah, that person was at my wedding and she was at my wedding and she, you know, she's been at my races before. She's been at my event. Like it's, Motorcycling is such a small niche group in general, and I feel like the, uh, all of us women, we do really get together and we support each other, and most of us know each other. So it's great to, to, to be in that room and with that group of women. It's an honor. It is cool. And if we haven't got your attention yet, see if this doesn't help a little bit. Some of Brittany's uh, What Has She Done Lately's, uh, she's involved in antique flat track racing, vintage road racing, drag racing, uh, antique motorcycle restoration. Uh, let's see, web design, product design, marketing. What else does she do? Oh, Born Free 11 invited builder. Let's see what else. She won the Sturgis Half Mile Championship in 2014, 15, and 16. Did I miss any? What else has she won? Let's see, featured columnist, uh, and not to mention uh, a pinup model of the month. So yeah, hopefully you're paying attention now, but really, you know, when we started chatting originally, what caught my attention was your interest in antique motorcycles. So I know one of your passions is riding, racing, restoring, building old motorbikes. So talk about your involvement there. So I married into an already really well-known established restoration shop in South Dakota. And before I married into that, I was building race cars with my dad as a young kid. I started racing four-wheelers at the age of 10. 14 years old, I started drag racing a 69 Camaro that my dad and I started building when I was five. And I just knew from a very young age that I was competitive. I was told I could be a racer, so my mind was set on being a racer. So from a very young age, I could wrench, I could ride, I could fabricate, I could you know work with metal. And that led up to me with my dad working on motorized bicycles. And so one year in Sturgis with my motorized bicycles, uh, I, 
a couple of my friends from the Limp Nicky lot. I don't know if you guys remember a Cycle Source's Limp Nicky lot, but it was, a, it was a great group of guys and some women that were garage builders and they were just, you know, they were doing it. They were they were entrepreneurs, they're self-employed. And and these guys though, they come up and there's, Where, who built this for you? Where'd you get this? And I'm like, I built it with my dad in our living room. Like, what are you talking about? What wrench would you use on this nut? And I'm like, I don't know, like a 916, but I'm like, it's, it's from China, so I would just use a crescent wrench. And they just died. Like at that response, they were like, whoa, where did you come from? And and I was like wearing a bikini at the time too. So I mean, it just on a motorized bicycle in on a, with a bikini at the Buffalo Chip, they just couldn't believe what they were seeing and hearing. It just didn't make sense to them at all. And they were like, you can hang out with us. What's your name? And I said, Brittany. And they said, oh no, we have to come up with a new name for you because someone was just separating from a Brittany. Okay. So they were trying to call me Buddy Bicycle. Well, because of the hot rodding background, and me being like 19 or 20 years old, I immediately just say, I am not a Betty, or I'm not a Buddy, I'm a Betty. And they were like oh. roaring again, Betty Bicycle. I kid you not, for two years, nobody knew my name was Brittany and Sturgis. Everybody just knew me as Betty Bicycle, the girl with the motorized bicycles. <laughs> but because of the motorized bicycles, I've really, um, and because of Chris Callen, uh, Mark Persichetti, uh, from Cycle Source and Pat Patterson and his wife Jen Patterson from Lead Sled, they really like shaped and molded me into this, you know, believer that I could build motorcycles. My motorized bicycles were motorcycles, and I just didn't know it yet. I didn't know that I was this. And and then I, you know, come at them with the I'm a racer. So Chris specifically told me to look at, look online, read motorcycle magazines, look at picture galleries, find out what excites me because. I couldn't get excited about sportsters. I couldn't get excited about, you know, um, baggers or Japanese bikes or dirt bikes. Like, I was a hot rodder girl. I liked the cars from the 20s and 30s. You know, I, I just really had this appreciation for early Americana car stuff. And the bicycles kind of just blended into that. So as soon as I was, like, looking and, and they're asking me, whose bikes do you like? I started telling them, you know, I, I like... Um, Jeff Fording's, you know, Panhead, and I like Kevin Bass's Knucklehead, and it, it didn't take, and Wall of Death Indians, it didn't take long before they were telling me, oh, you like old bikes, like, you need to go into, like, old bike stuff, so um, this is where the Antique Motorcycle Club of America comes into my life, and the local chapter uh, guys really kind of just put their arms around me and let me hang out at their meet and, and at their garage when they had their little club meetings. And they kept telling me I should meet this guy named Matt Olson. Kevin Bass is telling me I should meet this guy named Matt Olson. But I'm thinking this guy that they're telling me about is like in his mid-40s. I'm 19, 20 at this time. So like I'm the youngest and like the next youngest in our chapter is like in his mid-40s. So I'm thinking this Matt Olson guy they're talking about is in his 40s. Well, then on Facebook, I started getting messages from Matt Olson. And I thought for sure I was getting like Facebook catfished where like, so next thing you know, I was going to get asked for, like, nudes or something. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know. And they said, like, his whole, like, Facebook account looked like it's like a, just a fake account. He's from 90210, a tent in your backyard, Los Angeles, bear watching and bird was. I'm like, this guy, this isn't the real guy. Yeah. And what was it? Said he was, like, my age. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. So he keeps asking and messaging me about pinstriping for him because I've been apprenticed and trained in pinstriping. Another thing that I can do, right, right. <laughs> sign painting, yeah, so that I'm hugely passionate about that, but I don't have the same touch as I used to. I don't have the steady hand anymore, but what's so fascinating though was when 
I, I kind of like blew him off again because I thought I was getting like you know catfish and whatnot. So finally, though, we agreed to meet in a public place and um, like at, right, right after this motorcycle show, and. I was like, oh, hi, I'm Brittany. I'm already like an hour late to this meeting with him. And I shake his hand. I'm like, are you Matt? He goes, yeah. And I'm like, how old are you? He was like 24, 25, and I was then 22 at this time. So I'm like thinking, wow. And he asked me if I want to have dinner. And I was like, oh, I, did I brush my hair? Like, I, I was expecting to meet like... Another old guy. Yeah, like I wasn't expecting to meet someone that I could like potentially fall in love with. And I kind of catch myself getting a little warm. And he's asking me questions. I kid you not, that night at dinner, he asked me how old I wanted to be when I got married and when did I want to start having kids. Oh and I goodness. was like, I could do the whole entire I'm going to go to the bathroom and yeah. leave right You're now. like, I'm busy racing things. Yeah. But I actually had left dates prior to going on a date with him because they didn't want to customize their motorcycle. I literally <laughs> left. I was like, we can't be friends because I love fabricating. I love yeah. customizing things. That's my entire, you know, that's how my brain works. And if you think it's perfect out of the factory in 2003, you lost me. <laughs> So, yeah, so I was like, okay, let's just see how this goes. Like, if he makes any moves, maybe I'll just, like, be right. done. I don't, you know, don't need the drama. I don't need the, that right. in my life. No, sure enough, he's very kind, very respectful. And then he asked me out on a real date to come up to Aberdeen the next weekend. And on our first date, we took apart his 36 transmission. Oh, so you know. It was, it was, <laughs> it it was, was done. Uh, he asked first me to be his girlfriend, yeah. <laughs> and instead, this is the most beautiful love story because... All my years of like racing and having boyfriends while like having a racing career, I always wanted like custom JE pistons or at least piston rings or like right. slicks or something, you know, things that I didn't want like jewelry or like big, you know, fancy, you know, necklaces or bracelets or anything like that. I just wanted like parts for my race car. So when my husband asked me to marry him, I was backing up the trailer because he doesn't back up trailers very good. Oh, no. <laughs> so I backed up the trailer. Because that can put him back on the bubble pretty quickly. Oh, well, he loved it. He gets back in the car, we pull out of the driveway, and he asks me to marry him. And I'm right. like, well, you know I'm going to marry you. But, like, yeah, like, you already know. We've talked about like, this. We're kind of, like, planning this. Yeah. And then he's like, okay, okay. And we're driving down the highway again, like, two days later, and he asks me again, will you marry me? And I, like, I'm like, okay, wait a second. Do you need to, like, get down on one knee? We're in a car. Like, you should, like, do you want to do this a proper way? He goes, I don't have enough money for a ring. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, what do you... Honey, okay. what do you mean you don't have like enough money for a ring? I'm like, okay, I don't really care. You don't. We don't even need rings. Rings are dangerous in shops, anyways, yes. so it's not that big of a deal. He goes, but I did get you something, and it's in boxes on the way home. And I'm like, okay. Oh. So as soon as I got home, I had a 1923 Harley Davidson that originally, um, that that had, but not originally, but um, that we had, like my husband had purchased from Buzz Cantor from American Iron. Okay. So he's a close friend, and to, for for me, it coming from him and being my engagement ring that's mm -hmm. I, I couldn't get it any more perfect yeah. except for on our wedding day we got married on the wall of death and we oh, did our first dance inside the American Motor Drum Company's Motor Drum. You did not. <laughs> yeah. oh my God. See, this is what's striking. We've got the school teacher mom here in front of us that gets married on the wall of death. Yeah. Right? Well, he's a very handsome gentleman. I've seen his pictures. <laughs> and you also have a son. Yes, Lockheed, our little seven-year-old. Lockheed, is that because he's like a jet? Yes, or a missile. Or a missile. Probably better. <laughs> so, but, but, because we're a motorcycle podcast, back to yeah. that. So, you've been riding, typically, these are... Is that how yeah. you describe them? Yeah, pre-World War II, um, post-World War One. so right in that, we always say like pre-war, so like in, yeah. in on our pre-war, we're always talking about like 
36 to 42. Okay, Anything right. like pre-43 uh, would be considered like a pre-war. Right. So, but a lot of people, um, especially like modern motorcyclists, they really think too about that first world war. So when they think, you know, pre-war, they think that, and then right. pre-World War II. But just general terminology, we always say pre-war. Got and it. it's, it's generally everything before World War. Okay, too. cool. Yeah. So if Matt Harris is listening, I hope you are, Matt. You know who we're talking to because I think she's beat you twice at Sons of Speed? Yeah, twice. <laughs> Once or twice. Once for sure. I know for a fact because this is the the first race at Sons of Speed. Amazing. Because I, my entire life of racing, never shared a podium with another woman. And just of recently, there, I've been going to races called like Race of the Gentlemen or Sons yeah. of Speed. And so it's like very male dominated. But then you go on and then you, like the Sons of Speed is the very first one and then you win it. And then I get a share. So it, me uh, uh, first, uh, Matt uh, Harris is second and then Sherry, uh, I'm so excited. I'm, <laughs> Shelly Rossmeyer is third. And so they say Sons and Daughters of Speed because there's two women on the podium. <laughs> Matt that's, that's Sons and Daughters. That's yeah. perfect. <laughs> Matt's like the child, the man-child, yes. Matt Harris. Yes. Hope you're listening. So, you know, the other thing is we you race these old bikes and you race them fast. But then I, I get these inklings of racing new bikes fast, too. So you're transitioning a little bit from, like, say, not getting away from the American, the AMCA, but into some flat track stuff, some more modern things. So um, I'm a huge fan of American flat track. Now, I don't race American flat too. track, but I love American flat track. Yeah. And I love the uh, history that stems from early Class C racing, which they still race the 750 Class C formula today, mm -hmm. but just much more modern bikes. We've got great women that are racing. Shayna Texter, amazing, yes. hands yes. down. I Fast. just, my son loves Shayna Texter. I have videos of him just as a little boy and saying, Shayna Texter, Shayna Texter. And we're just watching American Flat Track videos like on my phone and he's uh, always awesome. rooting for Shayna. Oh, uh, you have to get, get that, that number for his jersey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then the other thing we were chatting earlier that caught my eye, because we're talking about Pat, is now you guys are into speedometers. Yes. Of all things, and you light up when I say this. Yes. So uh, earlier this year, we purchased a business uh, that they restored, and he had he had been uh, huge in restoring a lot of our clients and our own personal uh, speedometers. Okay. But uh, there's only a few people doing it now, and uh, we had the opportunity to buy his business and do like a three, four day crash course on how to rebuild them. Right. And then now we're setting it back, setting up shop back in South Dakota cool. and going through them. And it, it was such a fun thing to do. And it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's. So what are your typical speedometers? Yeah, so most, for the antique bikes, there's like Corbin speedometers, but the ones that we're really focusing on are called Stuart Warner, mm -hmm. uh, not, uh, not nice, Stuart Warner uh, speedometers. The Stuart Warner speedometers, they have they they go across so many industries, not just motorcycling speedometers. Okay. They we've got these little face plates that say sacks per minute. And it basically is how many flower sacks is it filling per minute? Oh, get and out so of town. it would keep track. Yes, yeah, so it, the interesting thing is is when you learn how to you know take apart, completely restore, reassemble, and you know, dial it in and then set it on a bike and have it you know set up and working right with all the correct period correct components it's a really fascinating thing but you can apply that same knowledge from the motorcycle speedometers to many different uh, speedometers and interesting you know, things that clusters. count things or whatever yes yeah so it, that's um, 
once I once I have the uh, antique motorcycle speedometers uh, really like down to a science. What I mean like down to a science, we're really excited about it because we come. My father-in-law especially comes from like a millwright background, a machinist oh, okay, background. Cool. So the tooling that our heads are just you know that that the gentleman we purchased it from, you know, didn't, he had some, but not necessarily as, you know, precise as what we're thinking. Right. We're so excited about that opportunity to, to do that. And once, once we get it figured out, I can't wait to dive into other things. And then possibly coming out with a custom speedometer, you know, where you can yeah. get a Brittany Olsen, you oh, know, custom oh. for your, your bobber. Or, that would be you know, boss. Bagger or even chopper, you know, uh, so that's, uh, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to for the future. I am anxious <laughs> to see the logo. I'm sure it will be fast, whatever it is. Yeah, maybe some B with some wings or something. Oh, uh, I see it's coming together. Is there a website? Oh, no. Uh, so they can, well, if you go to www.20thcenturyracing.com, you can see all about the racing exploits, which is just, it's, it's a, it's, I feel like it's just a branch of what we do. And then uh, Instagram, at uh, Matt Olson is my husband, and at uh, 20th Century Racing is my uh, Instagram handle so you can follow along on the adventures there and the bikes that we're building and everything knucklehead if yeah it, Ch yeah check out our Instagram um, <laughs> it's great it's almost like a little history hole too you know you go down there's great old stuff and all this kind of stuff so last question to wrap it up what do you have in the garage currently oh gosh well what do we have or what are we working on yes <laughs> yes how about both so uh, future project that I'm really excited about. I've got two street bikes in the work that I'm working on that are personal street bikes because all of my bikes are race bikes and this last year we've done more riding on the streets than we, you know, would have done racing. Great roads where you are at, and, as I, you know. Yeah, and so um, my we're, we're building a 1937 Harley-Davidson knucklehead, but the importance of this is I'm recreating a bike that was ridden by Dot Smith. Dot Smith is the rider that's on the cover of Chris Summer Simmons' book. Mm -hmm. And it's an iconic photo, but no one knows where the bike is. No one's found the bike. No one's done the bike, like built the bike. And so cool. it's really just fallen into place perfectly. And my husband and I always said, okay, yes, we will build that bike someday. We'll build that bike someday. And so that is happening now, which is so fun. And we just got the um, sheet metal painted and um, pinstriped. Mm -hmm. And so that was, it just turned out very beautiful. And then in the long-term projects, um, we're, we're working on a, a 47 Indian Chief chopper. I want a chopper. Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> nothing stock in but, your world, is there? No, and here, here's the cool thing, too, about this chopper is we have a friend whose grandfather started the Indian Excelsior dealership in the 19-teens in Denver. Mm -hmm. And his dad ran the business, then he ran the business, and um, so it was three generations. Now he's in his late 80s, maybe early 90s. He's very, very old. And um, he sold us parts for my Indian chopper. Hmm. So they were from the inventory of the actual shop, right? At yeah. the, the actual dealership. Yeah. Yeah. On on these uh, flywheels in, in the the shaft there, the, uh, in it, uh, there's a tag, you know, as most old bikes have, right? Or mm -hmm. the basket case that has. And on the tag, it says Dad's 47 Chief uh, cylinder or case, yeah. uh, not case, uh, flywheels. And so yeah. to have that assembly, and then to know that like that was that, that was the dealer's, like that was his personal bikes. And so to have that, and to be such good friends with the family, and yeah. to, to to have the history, and to have that connection. I just, I'm so excited for that project, yeah, but I'm yeah, also yeah. really excited to finally have a knucklehead too of my <laughs> own and ride it. 
just have my you know my own bike because I, I ride my um, father-in-law's uh, knuckleheads or my husband's knucklehead mm -hmm. and, and panhead and so I, I I ride a lot but it's not you know my own personal bike my own personal yeah. bikes are always out on the tracks so. yeah, yeah. how fun <laughs> oh cool well so well Brittany yeah. Olson thank you so much for taking the time well, to chat you. with us yes. we could spend hours because go check out uh, 20th century racing online there is so much that we didn't talk about yes, to can, talk about. See, there's like, you got videos on YouTube, and you can you can get a whole look at what it's like to be a little antique motorcycle racer. Woohoo! <laughs> well, more, we're looking forward to more exciting exciting things for years to come. Oh, thank you kindly. Cheers. <laughs> All right, that was great. Why? Well, not much. Yeah. Yeah. I will. I, I, they're like life changing, and there's. Hey, I am here at. National Cycle Booth with Paul, and I stopped here for a reason. So these are windscreens, windshields, and as I was saying, for a lot of us when we get a bike, one of the first things we do is toss that seat. Seats are not that comfortable if you're going to be doing any sort of distance riding or anything. But you know, there's another thing that you may want to toss and replace because it's just as important when it comes to not just comfort, but safety, especially when you're talking about uh, wind, you know, wind protection from rain and from uh, really getting tired, um, is windscreen. So I wanted to talk to you a bit about windscreens, how important they are, and uh, what are some of the, the technology and features that we aren't aware of? Why should someone swap out their windscreen? Yeah, you made a couple of good points there. First of all is the protection. Okay, and you know, when you have debris coming up off the road, uh, rain, you know, can be uncomfortable, those that ride with a helmet, those that don't. But also the comfort factor, you know, uh, it's making sure that the windshield is designed with the comfort factor in mind. Uh, what we use, uh, we feature polycarbonate uh, material, which is quantum hard coated. So with the polycarbonate, you're gonna have the highest impact resistance. With the quantum hard coating, you're going to have the ultimate in clarity because polycarbonate in its natural state is very porous, okay, and it actually scratches easier than acrylic. So back in the uh, mid-80s, uh, our uh, CEO and chief designer, Barry Willie, uh, created what is called quantum hard coating. And actually, we were approached by uh, Benelli for their scooter that had a windshield wiper, and it had to withstand 1,400,000 swipes without any visible scratching to the surface that's when quantum hard coating was designed and developed okay so what's really important is the technical aspect of a windscreen a lot of people think just put something up in front of you or some people even think the taller the better which is exactly what you don't want because that creates a stronger vacuum and a lot of riders will tell me especially like on a, a touring bike a big gold wing the passenger will say that it almost feels like somebody's pushing them from the back okay so it takes a lot of, you know, uh, blood, sweat, and tears, if you will, a lot of testing out on the open road to come up with the right design to each model. For example, our V-Stream uh, range, those are all developed on the bike. So, you know, each is model specific, uh, but they do have a consistency in that they do feature the polycarbonate, they feature the quantum hard coating, and most importantly, the V-Stream is a mechanical design. It's a patented design. It's wider at the top, narrower at the bottom. Okay, oh. so what that's doing is it's pushing the wind further away from your head and shoulders. 
What we've also done is we've made it a little more vertical. So what that does, it enhances the wind speed. So you've got two things working for you. The wind speed pushes it faster, okay, and it pushes it away from the head and shoulders. All right, so basically with the quantum hard coating and the awesome clarity, you've got, you know, the quiet by redirecting it away from your head and shoulders and the comfort taking it off all your torso. So is this improving gas mileage? Uh, I wouldn't no, say so it's much. not to that point. Because to be honest, we go three different heights, as you can see here. We go with our sport, our mid, and our tall. You know, and the more material you get out in front of you, there's going to be some resistance. But it does break through the wind, and whatever wind does come around is clean. It's not turbulent. There's a lot of uh, myth out there that, you know, you want a laminar lip up on top, or you want to flip. Flips, anytime you rotate wind, you're creating potential turbulence and dirty air. And that's what causes the buffeting and the discomfort. So what are some of the most popular bikes, uh, windshields that you're selling for bikes? What are the like ones that, they, that you really make a big improvement uh -huh. by replacing the windshield? Currently, you know, the adventure market is going through the roof. So we've got that pretty well covered. Yeah, the, the you're, you're Africa looking at twin. the Africa Twin, which we both ride. Yeah. But I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah, and the CRF 1100, one thing that a lot of people aren't aware of, the CRF 1100 Adventure Sport and the CRF 1100 Standard are two different bolt patterns. So Honda oh. did that to us. <laughs> we just finished developing uh, the Standard. Okay. So they will be two different windshields. Um, you know, just the ergonomics. You're standing, you're sitting a little bit more upright in the saddle, so there's a lot more tendency for wind to become uncomfortable. A lot of the adventure bikes come with very, very short windscreens. Yeah. Okay. So what we do again, offering the lower. There are uh, some of those riders that are preferring to keep it low, keep the wind off the torso. They'll deal with the wind going through their helmet. You know, mid, depending on the height and the ergonomic of the bike and the tall. It really, you know, depends on what's going to give you maximum comfort. One area that people are surprised when we do present the product at shows and what have you is they have a phobia of looking through the windshield. Right. I'm supposed to look over it. Well, yes and no, because a lot of those riders have been uh, experienced with windshields that are not hard-coated or of an inferior material like acrylic that scratches. Well, when acrylic scratches, you get that three to five o'clock in the afternoon sun, oncoming sun or headlights at night, that thing illuminates and it will blind you. And yeah, you don't want to be looking through okay, the windshield. I'm, I'm just going to admit a couple weeks ago, I was riding my 1987 Honda Elite scooter home uh -huh. that has the tall yeah. touring windshield on it. And it was foggy out and I hadn't cleaned it. And I was like, I just stick my head outside yeah. the whole way yeah. home because I couldn't see. So I get it. Yeah. So another thing that you guys do, so you have, you have windshields that bolt on to bikes that have smaller, less uh, efficient windshields, uh -huh. but you also have ones that can go on a bike that don't have them. Right. And this is something I'm a big advocate of, especially cruisers. Yeah. Having even a small windshield makes a significant difference. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so we'll talk about the uh, universal first and then we'll talk about model specific on the cruiser. Mm -hmm. Okay, universal, we have our deflector screen and our street shield. Uh, these were developed and introduced in the 70s. They are probably the most replicated design mm -hmm. 
There's you know many different uh, companies around the world that have been influenced by this design and you know continue to uh, produce them today. What we have on the deflector screen, it's a two-point mount at the handlebar. Okay, and we have two different options. One is a U-clamp, which does require tools to remove the windscreen from the bike, and we have quick set. Quick set is two big knobs on the deflector screen that you unscrew. The screen will come off the bike, and you still the clamp and the strap remain on the handlebar. Then we have the street shield that's a two-point to the handlebar, two points to the uh, uh, forks. That also features U-clamp. The so you've got the uh, two point uh, at the handlebar, you have the two point at the forks. That also features the U clamp for the quick set. Then we have the fly screen, which has been a, a staple item in terms of Universal for years. It's amazing how much a nine and a half inch tall windscreen will protect you. And basically, it, it's exactly that. It keeps the flies, the bugs off you, but more importantly, it keeps the, the pressure off of the torso. Then we have what we introduced about four years ago, the Mohawk. Okay, this is a little bit sportier. It kind of has a little bit of a V-stream look to it. It's not quite the V-stream technology. The fly screen and the Mohawk do feature the same hardware kits. All right, those are fork mount uh, with two different types of side plates to mount the windscreen too. Then we go into the uh, the Spartan Switchblade series, which is our quick release, and then we have our heavy duty, which is fixed. You do need tools to unscrew the four bolts. Uh, we do produce all of these in our factory in Chicago. This is, you know, the quick release. It features stainless steel components, uh, you know, a pressed uh, cap, stainless steel straps. We have them in three different series. We have the series for the straight fork, the tapered fork, and the covered fork. Okay? Nice. Uh, the Spartan is a little bit less decorative. It has uh, all stainless steel hardware, but this is powder coated and no exterior. Our switchblade is the creme de creme, chrome strap vertical and horizontal on the front, and polished stainless steel on the rear. All right, I got I got a, a whammy question for you. Okay. Is there a bike you don't make a windshield for? Yeah, uh, some of the uh, British, the Triumph. Ah, you know, okay. some of these bikes that have a large cluster odometer yeah. or odometer and tachometer. Even the nine-inch cutout, square cutout of our deflector shield, still won't allow enough clearance. But the answer is very few, very and that's few. the point, uh, you know, to our listeners. Yeah. Check out. You know, National Cycle makes windshields for just about everything, and I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you with a top tip. This is a little trick that I use uh -huh. in my garage because I have different windshields for some of my bikes. When I take them off and put them in storage, I use a T-shirt. Mm -hmm to cover them, to protect them. They fit right over, they're nice and easy. You probably have something fancier than that. One last thing to mention. <laughs> <laughs> the number one question people always ask is how do I maintain yeah. my windscreen? We have a special formulated windshield wash ah. or warm soapy water, a dime's worth of Dawn or some type of mild dish soap and soapy, you know, warm water. 
let it set a little bit, take that towel, saturate it, and if you've got a bunch of dead bugs, lay it over the top for about 15 minutes, go grab a beer or your favorite you know, beverage of your choice. That's a top tip. That's Paul's top tip. And you sit down and come back about 15 minutes later and you literally drag it off and you'll take about 90% of the bugs off because the bugs are absorbing all the moisture. Nice. And it'll slide right off. The other tip is rain zip, okay? Rain, rain zip is specially formulated in our factory in Chicago. All of our products are produced in our factory in Chicago, made in America. Made in America. And uh, rain zip is essentially rain X for plastic. Rain X and oh. plastic do not play well together. This is a hydrophobic material that will allow very little surface uh, contact mm -hmm. when the rain hits it and it will run off. What's really nice about it, it works awesome on face shields on helmets. Nice. Good tip. Well, how do people find out you know, more about your products and where can they go to buy them? They can go www.nationalcycle.com to get all the information. Uh, our products are distributed through WPS and Tucker. So any motorcycle dealer, bricks and mortar, can supply it to you. There's many resellers online as well. But always go to our website to confirm your year, make, model. That's the most important thing so you can buy with confidence. We have a shop tab. It'll take you by vehicle, by year, by make, by model. Everything on that landing page has been test fit to your bike. You can go ahead and peruse windscreen, and we have a ton of other accessories that are featured on those landing pages. Awesome. Thank you so very much. Thanks. Thank you. All right. So we, we yeah, so I'm here with Jim Strang from Sigmatic Corp. And, uh, you know, I, Liza and I just stumbled on this booth yes. a second ago, and I, I didn't know anything about it. So then she started telling me these magical stories about traffic lights. So tell me, what is this product? Okay, what we have was we have a product. If you, if you are an avid motorcycle rider, we've all had the problem. You come up on a red light, and you cannot get that light that to recognize. Yes, and um, a lot of people think these lights, they see that tar square cutout in the road when you come up on a light if they haven't paved over it yet. Yep. They think that's a pressure plate and weight, and it's not. Mm -hmm. Now, all the weight systems were... Um, they got rid of all that in the early 60s and went to inductive loop systems. Okay. So that's actually a magnetic field in the ground. So when a car comes up, it's got enough metal mass to interrupt that field and it lets the light know something's there. Okay. Well, since the 60s, everyone on a motorcycle comes up on these lights and they don't have enough metal mass to right. interrupt that field. That's why you either have to run the red light or you got to make a right turn, go down, make a U-turn and yep. come back around. So, um, or no, scooch up into the crosswalk and block that so a car can, yeah, or get off your bike and yeah. go over and push the button, yeah. you know. So, but I've seen people do that too. But, um, anyways, uh, we've come up with a product and uh, that um, goes up under your bike and it hooks to a ground and it hooks to uh, the brake wire line. So, when you hit your brake, it actually activates the unit, right. So, when you come up on the light, hit your brake activates the unit we actually read that magnetic field in the ground send one out that interrupts the field and starts the process to change the light so um, nobody's ever been able to figure this out it was a very long road to uh, figure it out and make a computer board that would read all these signals huh. and now we've got it perfected we got our FCC licensing and we're out here doing it and we've also found that uh, 
in Florida, all the villages, these people riding golf carts are same having problem. the same problem. So now we've got into the golf cart end of it, and people are putting them under their golf carts and be able to get through the yep. lights to get across the streets and stuff. So I'm looking at like a black uh, rectangle cube. Yep. Uh, that's about four by eight and about an inch thick. It looks almost yeah. like so a tablet is, case. Yeah, it's like a... Yeah, it's like somewhere between a, an iPad and a lo- big iPhone. Yep, yep. Um, so, and it's meant to just strap onto the bottom of one of their yeah. frame rails? Yep, and then if you didn't want to use our cradle system and the clamp to clamp on one of your bars, um, people are actually two-siding taping them with some primer and putting them up uh, their saddlebags or they're even putting them inside their saddlebags. We have found this thing works the best at 10 inches or lower to the ground. So, um, but yeah, you can do it either way, and uh, they retail. If you want the clamp and the cradle and everything, it's two twenty nine retail. If okay. you bought just the unit, it's one seventy nine, okay. and that's very cheap to uh, to fix a problem that sure. you know instead of having to deal with running red lights all the time. Well, and, what uh, a great idea! So, if somebody wants to buy one of these, where can they go? Um, they can go to Signalmatic. Dot com. It's S I. It's actually S I G N A L hyphen Matic M A T I C dot com, and uh, you can purchase them on there for sure. Uh, we're starting to get a lot of dealers coming to us. You know, we've just come out with this, got our FCC licensing, so this is actually our first show dealing with dealers, and I. That's that's where we're gonna have to go with this is with right. the dealers instead of doing all these shows all sure. the time. Yep. <laughs> well, awesome. But, well, we, yeah. miss, we uh, wish you all the best. Yes, thank you. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, I appreciate it. All right, so I am with Colton Webb, who is representing eBay Motors. Um, Colton, how long have you been with eBay? Uh, going on four years now. Okay. Uh, so I've been with eBay a while. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're looking forward to the, the future of eBay. It's been Great. And we're going to touch upon that, Colton. Um, we talked very, very briefly about the path of eBay. And I think this is going to be the same for a lot of our listeners. Way back at the turn of the millennium, a lot of us would buy bikes off of eBay, buy our parts off of eBay. And then, um, I guess, Craigslist came along. And then a lot of us defected to Craigslist, and then that became a little bit hokey, and then Facebook Marketplace came along, and that got really hokey. And a lot of us are going back to eBay Motors. Um, I never really went away. I, I visit eBay Motors and buy parts for my business virtually daily. I notice you're running quite an aggressive marketing campaign right now. So what is the trend that you've seen? I guess it's pandemic-related. Tell, tell us about what the trends you've seen, say, in the last couple of years. Certainly, yeah. I think the, the pandemic certainly accelerated some e-commerce trends, right? Uh, like you said, Craigslist, Facebook, local meetups, that's always been a part of people buying parts and buying cycles, uh, all, all sorts of things like that. But, you know, eBay's always been a turnkey solution for both buyers and sellers, making it easier than ever. And... Something that eBay has always been proud of is our trust and safety. Right. Uh, right. The, the reason that you can buy on eBay is you, you feel good about your purchase. It's guaranteed, and where eBay stands behind that. And I can actually attest to that. I mean, I probably spend upwards of five to $6,000 a month on parts on eBay, and not everything goes well. 
on occasion the part hasn't been as described or it arrived damaged and in every case if the vendor hasn't stepped up and refunded eBay has so I can attest to it's a very very high quality product are you planning on making any changes to the platform in the near future? You know, we, we, we just launched our app uh, two years ago, which has been a big change for us. Uh, parts and accessories on our app and vehicles on our app has been easier to shop for than ever. Right. You know, we're proud of our browser experience, of course, but the app has been a big change for us. Uh, and we're, we're really looking forward to that. We would encourage you to download it uh, if you're a big eBay buyer, for sure. Uh, but, you know, I think it's one of those things where... You know, we're seeing a more and more investment in, in the parts and accessories business. Uh, it's been a big, big channel for us. Um, and you've, you've experienced that yourself. Absolutely. Um, but of course, I'm, I'm very happy with eBay, but I do want to talk about the, the relationship between eBay and PayPal. It seems to have kind of parted company, and that was quite recently. Now, I've always maintained an eBay account, yeah. and I've always maintained a PayPal account, because to me, that's peanut butter and jelly. What happened? <laughs> well, so e eBay no longer owns PayPal. Uh, we, we divested from that business a few years ago. Uh, and ever since then, we, we wanted to make it easier for our, our buyers and sellers to make payments and receive payments. Uh, and PayPal was an easier solution, but now it's a one-stop shop, right? For any new seller who wants to come in, you don't need two accounts. Right. You can just have one eBay account and get paid the same way and pay the same way. So if for me, who's primarily, I mean, I'm up to probably... 1500 right now I'm primarily a buyer so what do I do what what's the easiest way for me because like a lot of our listeners I'll buy my item and then I'll hit the the window and it switches me over to PayPal and then I've got to re-enter all the information sure. and it's a little bit clunky so how can I navigate away from that and as you say yeah. do the one-stop thing what's so, the easiest way uh, our new system allows you to use any payment method you choose. so if you want to use a Visa card great if you want to use Apple Pay you can absolutely do that so our our goal was to provide buyers with more choice to make payments right and give them that option whether you still want to pay with PayPal you absolutely can Yes. Uh, but if you want to pay with credit cards, 100%. Uh, makes it a lot easier not to re-enter your information, create a PayPal account, uh, do all of that stuff now. And we've, we've made that easier to streamline for our buyers, too. Great. Well, like, I think it's a great platform. It's my go-to. I think it's a lot of other people. If you haven't visited PayPal in a while, I think perhaps you should. I, I have a quick question for you. So one of the issues with um, Craigslist with Facebook Marketplace is there's a lot of scammers on there. So I'm curious, what does eBay Marketplace do to make it a safer experience for buyers and sellers? Yeah, our global customer experience team works really hard to prevent... Oh, hold on, let's pause for announcement. <laughs> is he going to do this a long time? No, presented by Mark Rogers. Rogers Performance Consulting starts in three minutes at the education stage. How to interview, hire... Yeah, so our, we, and our, our customer experience team works really hard to prevent scams and fraud on the platform. Of course, there's always going to be bad actors on any platform you go on to, which is why we still stand behind that guarantee. Uh, you do run into these situations all the time, but eBay is there to make sure that you feel safe and represented as a buyer and as a seller, too, right? Sellers are just as much victims of scams and things that just as much as buyers are. Right. Um, and that's why we, we, we keep the feedback system. We keep all these restrictions in place. And we monitor accounts to ensure 
the best possible experience you can have on the platform. Right. Now, Emma, I'm sure you, like me, have fond memories of going to motorcycle junkyards oh, and yeah. scouring for parts. Hard to find a junkyard like that anymore, is well, it? Well, unfortunately, and it's not a bad thing, so please don't think we're throwing you or eBay <laughs> under, the, under the bus. But really, eBay Motors were the end of motorcycle junkyards as we know them. Um, and it, I think it's probably just a progression of the industry. And as fond of memories we have of them, I think finding people who would want to devote their Saturday afternoon to getting their hands dirty and rolling around underneath decrepit bikes and junkyards getting pretty thin on the ground too. Well, actually, I was going to say um, we owe a big thanks to eBay because all the old bikes that we're trying to keep on the road, we can find those parts. And to this day, we still get people saying, hey, where can I get this part? And usually our answer is right. eBay. And just something which people don't actually realize. I work on a lot of vintage bikes. All of my listeners know that. A lot of them are English, Italian. I buy parts via eBay Motors internationally. Yeah. And exactly the same quality assurance is there whether you buy your parts from eBay UK, eBay Italia, eBay Germany, isn't that correct? It's it the is. same standard. 100%. Uh, you know, and it, what, what we're really proud of is, you know, eBay was founded the idea of empowering people and being able to be the place that was to be where you needed, the, the hard to find was. Uh, and that's true for auto parts, of course. Like you guys mentioned, your, your older, older bikes are still running thanks to eBay. But that's true for sneakers, for watches, mm -hmm. for collectible right. coins. It's always been the place to find the hard to find the cool stuff, right? And yeah, of course, junkyards are still around, uh, but eBay's created accessibility for those for right. those, those parts and accessories. And, and lastly, I wanted to thank you. You guys are doing an ad campaign and for featuring a female builder, Jay Shia, who's been on our show. Yeah. Right. What a great choice. So that was a good move. So whoever's responsible, tell them thanks. Incredible to work with. You know, <laughs> she, she was awesome. And, you know, we're, we're excited to have the people that we do have uh, supporting eBay. Right. Nice. Well, so thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I don't think you. we need to tell people where to go. eBay Motors. <laughs> exactly. And download the app. <laughs> yes. download Dan, the app. <laughs> it seems that this is the way everything is going towards the app. We all carry phones. Our phones are so powerful now that yeah. get the app, get buying, keep that old clunker on the road. There Thanks. you go. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I am here with Joel High. Joel High, who do you work for? I work for Uwasa Battery. Woo! I'm so excited by this. Now look, this should not come as a surprise for you because, Liza, how many years have I been on the podcast? Seems like a hundred. I don't know, five maybe? Six. Six, okay. How many years have I been telling people to put Uwasa batteries in their bikes? Six. Thank you. So, I've always been of the opinion that when it comes to motorcycle batteries, there is UASA and the rest. Joel here is going to help me explain why that is. Exactly, because we've never really gone into why. What is the difference? So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about batteries. Okay. okay. So, Joel, um, UASA 
is a name that's very well known in the motorsports industry, but not so well known in the car industry. In North America, that's correct. Right. Um, on a global scale, the Yuasa Automotive is typically number one in a lot of markets, like in Asia and right. in Europe. Um, but predominantly in North America, it's just the power sport batteries. So your focus has been on power sports. Correct. So um, I've been riding motorcycles since the 1970s. <laughs> and if you pride the side panel off a mid-1970s Suzuki GT750, you'd see a UASA battery. Yep. How long have they been around? Well, our organization um, is owned by the Japanese company GS Yuasa. Um, the history of that is it's two different companies um, that merged together, Yuasa Battery and GS Battery. Right. Uh, both of them are, are over 100 years old, so they started quite a ways back. Um, now that we actually moved into the U.S. market uh, about 42 years ago, I believe, 79, 78. And is it true that the first batteries were just potatoes with wires? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but probably didn't have UASA on the side. <laughs> so, um, Joel, I would like to talk a little bit about the types of batteries that you can buy right now um, and a little bit about how battery technology has changed. So let's go back to that mid-1970s Suzuki. That had an opaque battery on it with little yellow caps on the top and a vent yep. pipe on the side. And when you bought the battery new, you had a little pack of acid and you kind of filled it up to the right level. You can still buy those batteries right now, can't you, from UASA? Correct. Yes. And, and those are our conventional batteries. Right. Um, and But back, back in those days, you had to maintain them. Yes. So there was some type of evaporation yes. when you used them. Um, so from time to time, you'd have to put distilled water back in the battery. Mm -hmm. um, times have changed since then. Well, you know, everything has become more maintenance easy. I mean, if you'll remember yep. that back then, motorcycles had contact points that you'd have to adjust. Now, of yep. course, electronic. You'd have carburetors that you need to adjust. Now, of course, it's fuel injection so everything's moving on so let's do a time scale so we've gone from the conventional battery now the mf technology comes in which is simply maintenance free correct okay and that that is well people don't want to spend too much time working on their batteries um so the maintenance free is uh, a sealed battery so once the acid's put into it um it's charged that battery is sealed um, they call it maintenance-free, sometimes a little bit deceiving. You still need to pay, maintain, right. put it on a charger. Um, but from a distilled water, um, you know, watching your water levels, um, that's kind of a thing in the past. And, and now we're moving on to further to factory-activated. Correct. And factory-activated, it's not quite the latest but we're definitely moving up on the evolutionary scale now yes so a factory activated is um i i guess it's exactly what it says it's a completely manufactured unit in the, in the factory absolutely it's charged we charge it before it leaves the building so when you go into your dealer and you grab that thing 
it's ready to rock and roll. Yep, put it right in the bike and you're ready to go. And the thing I like the most about the factory activated ones, you can mount them pretty much at any angle, can't you? Yes, and sometimes that's very important, especially with some of the personal watercrafts, right. where the fitment of it is actually on an angle, sometimes even on the side, Right. where if you do not have a, a sealed battery, you can see some leakage, definitely potential for some damage to your vehicle. Okay, so now this is it. It's only a five minute interview, I wish I could talk to you more. God, I've been such a champion for US batteries over the years, and that's based on experience. It's not some weird ass licky thing. Tell me why Yuasa batteries are far superior to any other bike. What I always tell people is, they always moan and say, it's twice the price. And I say, oh, it's at least twice the battery. Yeah. Why? We pride ourselves on the quality. And that's part of the process when we build the battery. Um, it's part of the chemistry that goes into it. Some of it's proprietary. Right. <laughs> um, but it's definitely, if you look at things like the quality of the lead, um, typically the plates inside the battery, um, it is 100% pure lead. We don't use recycled lead um, in the product. Um, there's certain methods that we use. And, and sometimes that's the reason why the batteries are a little bit more expensive because our process takes longer. Um, there's higher quality checks. Um, you know, everything that we go through is, is monitored. So we're testing voltage um, as it goes through the process and definitely before it leaves the door. Um, our, la our latest line is our GYZ line. Okay. Um, and the reason why that's the most powerful battery in the power sport industry is because there's more lead in it. So where you may have a normal YTX where the lead plates go up about 70% of the battery, um, we pack more into our GYZs where the plates actually go up 80 to 85% the height of the battery. Um, again, it's a longer process, it's a more expensive process, but there's more in there to give you more power and more CCAs. So, and I'm actually glad you brought up the subject of the volume of the plates within. I remember many years ago, I had a very disappointed customer bringing a battery that they had bought from a nationwide parts automobile parts distributor who rhyme with auto roam <laughs> and the battery had failed in about six months and taken out a very expensive charging system too and so i decided to actually try and figure out why this was and please don't try this at home i own a motorcycle workshop i cut the battery open and I found that the plates extended only 50% up in the case. Yep. So even though it produced 12 volts, you didn't have the volume of plates. And it, that was a very simple way of explaining why that was such a terrible battery. Yep. Um, and it also explains why your batteries are so good. You simply get more battery for your money. Yeah, I'm glad we finally got that explanation because we've never really gone into why use Yuasa. And for me, I think it's also do do one thing and do it really well, kind of. Yeah. Right. This is what you guys um, do. Just before we go, I'm no huge fan of lithium-ion batteries. I think they have their place in the industry, but you need to be very careful what charging systems you put them on. 
I think the lack of lithium-ion batteries you've got on this standard telling, that's not really the direction that USA are going in, is it? No. And I'm not going to talk bad about the industry, um, but that is definitely not. We're lead acid all the way. Um, you know, we do have some concerns with weather. Right. Um, you know, a lot of our product is done for cold weather, snowmobiles. Um, you know, when it's 10 degrees outside, how how, how confident are you right. that a lithium ion is going to start up? Um, and for us, we focus a lot on big bikes, big vehicles. Um, and a lot of people buy the lithium ion to save 5, 10 pounds. Well, right. if you're, you're driving a 1,000-pound vehicle... Yes. What's five pounds going to do? Does it really matter? And the important, I cannot stress this enough, the important figure on any battery is the CCA, is the cold crank amps. And that's the measure of a battery. And the more you've got CCA, the more it's going to crank your bike when it's cold. And this is where the cheaper batteries fall by the wayside. And like a phoenix, US arises above the rest what a great interview joel thank you so much and thank, thank you. you so much for explaining to me why the batteries i love are so good thank you thank you my pleasure thank you thank you good interview here with uh, christian hansen from sw motech and i've uh, been really impressed with some of the gear you've got coming out coming out right now so tell us uh, some of your favorites yeah and, and what's what's new so yeah well so the biggest thing that's new and why we're here today is we are setting up u.s distribution so excellent uh we have a, a spot in oregon now a warehouse and a sales office and a and a u.s website so right. that's our starting point but let me show you some of the parts we're excited about sure we are launching here the new sis bag waterproof system uh, we've had this product for a number of years, but so this is the evolution. We're looking at a, a, a soft bag yep. with, a, with a PVC outside. You got it? Yep. Go ahead. Yep. All of them have a molly patch, and we'll, there's, there's accessories and all sorts of pieces we can add and include to that that we make, which is fantastic. But this is a roll-top waterproof bag, all of which have an internal uh, storage that's adjustable. Yep. Um, primarily, so I would say this is what, like 14 by 18? Yeah. And these are yeah. these expand from 9 to 17 liters. Okay. Um, three different sizes to pick from. These two are expandable, and you can actually all three of them are expandable. These with the kind of shaped outside don't expand as much, but the big, large version goes from. Which like, is up to 40 liters. 40 liters. It's big. Wow. It's a lot of capacity. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I know you're excited about this yeah. this connection piece. Yes. Uh, so t tell us. So we're looking at a. Yeah, describe it, John. Yeah, it's kind of a. What is it like a hexagon, Nicole? Yeah. Um, piece with. Uh, yeah. So it's flat. Yeah. I can't. I don't know how John, to explain it. John, let him explain. So let <laughs> John, Molly is a one by one pattern. There we go. It comes from like a universal tactile tactile. Uh, uh, outfitting right so yep. there's a ton of accessories not only that we make but that other people make okay that utilize this same shape uh, some of our favorites I think I can show you on uh, this bike here yep. we have a new system that attaches that's called the twist lock and it's a component that attaches underneath that molly and then on the bottom side 
allows you to attach phone cases uh, or tool cases. Yep. We have so a lot more secure than the old just spring-loaded clamp or, or arms. So this is a, a, a case that twists and locks on. Nice. Normally, Molly systems use webbing, and we have some that also maintain that webbing style, but this is just the fastest way to do it. And you'll see these patches on everything that we make now. So I'm going to take a shot describing the Molly patch. Basically, if you took bungee cord, turned it into a flat fabric, cut holes in it, so now you can have an expanding net. Is that what expand. It actually needs to hold its shape okay. and not expand at all so that it holds oh. things nice and tight. I was completely wrong. It's close, though. But, you know, we think of bungee as being a quick, fast way to yeah. accessorize or attach things, and you're spot on with that. Like, that is a way to expand a standard size bag. Yeah. Yeah. And then we really like these uh, side bags um, sure. that you have over here in this Africa Twin. So explain this to us. Uh, the ones on the front? Yeah. yeah. Right oh, yeah. This is one of my favorite bags. Yeah. So this is our dry bag 80, okay? And this is, I would say, not an uncommon shape, right? With is a, uh, a eight liter dry bag, roll top bag. The thing I like about it, it was initially developed for crash bars, but I have found it's really easy to use as a fender bag as well. And this is a bag that can go from bike to bike to bike. If you have multiple bikes, it's a fantastic option to keep Oh, I don't know, your tools in there, a spare tube, a little something to eat if you needed to. It's a very uh, useful bag. Lots of different ways to attach it to a bike. And that's a thing to creating storage where storage didn't exist. Right. Sometimes you don't want to put large bags on. You just want some smaller containers to strap on. That's right. So onto the fender, you know, for tools, going dirt biking. Yeah, yeah. So Throw these some are water in there, yeah. Yeah, or, or as you said, your lunch. These are a great solution to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we can't be uh, more excited about you being uh, in the U.S. and Oregon now, yeah. and we've been big fans of this uh, this brand for a long time. Yeah. And uh, you know, we're wishing the best for y'all. I sure grow. appreciate it. Yeah. One quick question: yeah. Now that you're in the U.S., is that changing the products that you're seeing? That's a great question, and the answer is yes. We've been imported to the U.S. for a number of years, but we are now uh, expanding the product range to include everything that we make. So we have the full product range now. And it's stocked deep, well, as deep as we can in the middle of what we're going through. But for sure, we've got a lot of product now. And I think the other thing to note here, SW Motec is a name that I've always associated with adventure riding. Yeah. Yeah, we're looking at Africa Twin that's equipped. But behind us is a MT, is that an MT-09? Yeah. MT-07. So you're making stuff for street bikes, for commuters. So that's a whole other market there that I didn't even realize you guys are in. Absolutely. Yeah, we, uh, we we do have a lot of products for the commuter, for the first-time bike rider, maybe, you know, uh, sport bike riders who are often overlooked when it comes to accessories and luggage specifically. We have some really good bike-specific products. Great. I preface bike-specific because there's a lot of universal ways to add luggage. Not too many bike-specific that fit your bike. Cool. So where do people go to find out more about your products? So for sure, please visit us. We are at sw-motech.us. Use the bike filter to find the bike that you have, and you'll see all the parts we make for your bike. And they can buy through the website or have to go through a retailer? Uh, we sell direct to end users, and you can also go to your dealer. Perfect. Thank you so much. You. You're welcome, you guys. Thanks. Enjoy the show.
I am with a, quite an old friend of mine from the industry. Um, tell us your name. Lee Anderson. And what do you do, Lee Anderson? Well, right now I am the uh, area sales manager for Suzuki Motor USA. Um, I, my territory includes Northern California, Southern Oregon, Northern Nevada, and Northern Utah. That's us. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> what makes Lee a very unusual case? Here we are in 2022, and as shameful as it is to say, women are still un underrepresented in this industry. When you get into the larger manufacturers, and let's be honest with you, Suzuki are one of the heavy hitters in the industry, it gets even more unusual to find women in the higher positions. So you have quite a story to tell me, don't you, Lou? I do. Well, on that, on that tip, Emma, I am actually the first female area sales manager in the history of Suzuki Motor USA. <laughs> well, so... Which you'd think that there would be more, but uh, I'm glad to I'm glad to maybe uh, open the door for some uh, some ladies behind me, which uh, would be really great to to know that that's well, the case. Well, as much as I am, and everybody knows my history with Suzuki and how much I love the brand, and I love that you are the first. But how did you get to where you are now? It's quite a story, Emma. So. Um, well, I've been in the motorsports industry for about 15 years, okay. um, but it was a career change for me. Before I was in motorsports, I was a radio personality, and okay. I did that for about 15 years. Okay. So I started when I was 12. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I was going to say you started as a toddler. I was 18. It was my first job out of high school. I grew up in Detroit, um, and uh, Detroit, as I don't know if you know, but um, is a very, very radio-oriented city, uh, especially in the 80s. Um, when I was in high school, the rock radio revolution was really happening uh, in Detroit, and I got sucked into it, decided I wanted to be a DJ. Um, I started interning at a radio station, uh, WLLZ, Detroit's Wheels. Yeah. <laughs> when I was she still, still got it. I still yeah. got oh, it. Oh, yeah, you got it. You got I, There's the old DJ coming out <laughs> yeah. right now. I told you I wasn't going to be afraid to be on mic with you. But um, <laughs> So I, I started there when I was still in high school. I went to broadcasting school. Um, Got my first job at an oldies station when I was 18 okay. in Lansing, Michigan, um, doing overnight, midnight to 6 a.m., which was a hellish shift, but um, at the time, that was kind of how you had to get started. But I worked all over the country in radio. Um, from Lansing, I went to, uh, well, from Detroit to Lansing, then to the Poconos in Pennsylvania, uh, the Jersey Shore, Philadelphia, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, L.A., and then I wound up in Sacramento. Okay. And I was working uh, at 98 Rock in Sacramento. Okay. And uh, I, I actually, when I was living in L.A. was when I got bit by the sport bike bug. That was when I got my first motorcycle. So, so you were actually a latecomer in real terms to motorcycling. Yeah. How old were you when you got your first bike? 30. 30? Mm-hmm. But you fell hard. I you? did. I really did. I did. And it was, you know, it was right at the uh, uh, kind of the, the really the big crux of the sort of sport bike you know, explosion in Southern California. Right. Um, when everybody, everybody had Hayabusa's. Everybody was riding uh, GSXRs. It was such a fun time 
to learn how to ride and a great place to learn how to ride too. So my first bike was a Kawasaki Ninja 250. Okay. Um, and Good then place yes, to start. it was. I bought it at Honda of Hollywood. But then my second bike was a Suzuki SV650, which I bought at Suzuki of Van Nuys, and that was the bike that really opened up the world for me. But aside from that, so I'd been riding, but I was still in radio. Um, I moved up to Northern California. I got tired of the agenda that everybody had and the Hollywood agenda in, in LA and it was just not my thing anymore so I moved up to Sacramento um, working at 98 Rock uh, I was uh, doing middays at the radio station 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. and they kind of it was a kind of an aggressive rock station so they kind of cultivated my personality as sort of the you know the motorcycle chick that you know I, right, right, right. so um, it was a lot of fun and I got really involved in the in the riding community there, and then into the racing community there. So uh, I started road racing at that time, okay. uh, and I, I raced uh, with AFM. And ironically, my first race bike was a Ninja 250, um, which was really a, a fun experience. Uh, and I started. I, I kept getting a little bit better, and a little bit better, and a little better. And I started instructing track days, and I got really, really involved in the in the racing community and wanting to also kind of help mentor other women riders as well. It was a really fun time for me. You know. What, Lee, this is a commonality I find with so many women in the industry, sure. and I'm included in this as yeah. well. It's so uncompetitive with other women. Yeah. You know, guys want to be the top dog. For sure. All we want to do is bring more of us into the industry and bring more of us into the sport. You're so right, Emma. When I first started racing with AFM, which is the uh, you know, it's 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 a it's a, a, a club race, a, a, a club road racing organization in Northern California. Um, there were 11 women, and there were about 500 members altogether. Right. Um, so it was there were not very many women. We definitely stood out. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you a funny anecdote. Um, when you're talking about women being really accepting and men, some of them not so. Uh, one one guy who was in my in my class was really jealous of the fact that I got help. I was having you know people who were quote unquote sponsoring me, even though I sucked. And he said, he said, why are you getting help? Why are you getting tires? Why are you getting this assistance? And, and, and I'm way better than you. I'm winning. Why am I not getting this help? And I said, you know, they're never going to remember the guy who comes in seventh, but they're going to remember the girl who comes in 17th. So, right. <laughs> you know, it's about being remembered. And it's also about making an impression and, and being that ambassador, which I think I really was. So it was a lot of fun. Um, after I did two years on the 250, um, well, I'm kind of getting a little bit ahead of myself. I did start racing another SV. I started racing SV650 at that That's point. That's a great platform to race. And, it you know, is. a lot of people have got a very good start on the SV. It's a great bike. And I've owned many of them. But in the meantime, so about how I got into the, the motorsports industry, of course, it was becoming more and more a part of my life. And right. radio, you know, it was still... You know, music is always where my heart is. It was definitely a, a, a fun job, but it was becoming more and more corporate. A lot of the fun that was, uh, you know, things that I was expecting in the beginning of my career didn't come to fruition at this right. point. Uh, I wasn't really, I wasn't really enjoying it. I wasn't allowed to be as creative as I wanted to be in the beginning. Um, you know, for example, we weren't, all, you know, it was because radio was the corporatization of radio was really, right. really strong at that point. Um, it still is, of course, but it was really when it began. Um, we weren't allowed to take requests. We had to stick with the format. You know, it was it, the the fun was getting sucked out of it for me. And I, I looked around and I said, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years, and what do I have to show for it? I have some, uh, you know, framed concert posters that are signed, and that's about it. And <laughs> I'm kind of guessing. I'm kind of doing the math in my head. You're in your late 30s, early 40s back then, and that's kind of a 
pivotal time? I was, at the time I was 32. A 32, so yeah. early 30s. So yeah. you're probably, it's a, it's a time for change, isn't it? Sort of. It was a definitely a, chi- it was a It was a change. A lot of things were changing around me. It was, um, let's see, it was 2000, well, I guess it was, it was 2004 when I got into the motorsports industry, so I was 33 at that point. Okay. So, um, but it was 32 when I was really starting to have that kind of change of, of identity in a way. So, and what was your first job in the industry? That's what I was getting to. Hold yes. on. There's, oh. a, there's, a, there's a bridge here. Oh, I, I, I like the bridge. I, I didn't just leave. I actually, you know, kind of, kind of stuck a foot out there first. But so I was very involved, as I said, in the riding and racing community in Sacramento. I was not satisfied with my current job in radio. Um, the radio station I was working at actually got sold, brought in new ownership. They told me that um, they, they decided that they didn't want a woman on the air during the midday period, even though I was number one in my in my rating, um, in my day period for ratings. But they said they didn't want a woman on the air anymore, so they decided they were going to move me to weekends. And at that point, I just said, screw you, I'm out. I'm going to go do my own radio show. And I decided to leave and start my own radio talk show about motorcycles. And this was really pre-podcast time, right. you know. So uh, it was. I, I had. I knew I had to find a, a syndicator. I knew I had to find all this stuff. So I found. Uh, I found a syndicator. I found some people who were willing to give me some money, who already had a radio show about um, flipping houses, which you know was really big at that time. Right. So, uh, and they were motorcycle riders themselves. So they decided to, to give me some money and give me a platform. Um, it was uh, via KMBR in San Francisco. Was our flagship. Um, I was the host. I was the affiliate relations director. I was the ad salesperson. I was, of course, doing all the promotions and everything. Um, we were on the air on Sunday morning, broadcasting from KNBR. I would manage to get us on, I think, nine affiliates. We were in Dallas and Boston and L.A. and uh, Toronto. I can't even remember, but I, I, I got us on the air in some, some pretty big markets. But... Um, and motorcycle-heavy cities as well. Oh, for well. sure, for yeah. sure. Uh, I had two male co-hosts who were also motorcyclists, and our idea was, uh, so I was sport bike racer girl. We had a, a Harley mechanic um, who worked at Vallejo Harley at the time, and then a retired uh, motorcycle cop. Uh, who was a big BMW touring guy? So we thought between the That's three of us that, that we could that we could kind of provide a insight into a lot of different types of, of riding styles. So it was a lot of fun, but. Um, we didn't make money quickly enough, and the syndicators decided to pull the plug after about nine months. Okay. So uh, at that point, I was fed up with radio. I said, screw this. I'm jumping full on into the motorsports industry, and I went to work for one of our advertisers, uh, which was Leo Vinci Exhaust. Oh, and, I know those guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I came on board as their, um, uh, as their uh, events and promotions coordinator. And that was my first job in the industry. And that's the bridge we were yep. looking for, because yep. events and promotions with your bubbly personality. And my, and my radio background. And your yeah. radio background is a perfect fit. So yeah. now you're at Leo Vinci. Yes. And it was a lot of fun. I was having a great time. Um, but I wanted to move on and do something a little bit more. Uh, I, I wanted to, to spread my wings a bit more. Right. So um, it was ironically at um, an, an event. I can't remember. I think it was the V-Twin Expo where I met uh, the guy who was in charge of the Castrol Oil Motorcycle Division. Mm-hmm. He asked me to come on board and do dealer development. So that was my first kind of uh, interaction really with, with dealers and with sales in that regard, wholesale. Uh, so I helped to, to uh, build the dealer network work for Castrol Motorcycle, which was really fun. But they let me be creative. I did a lot of the POP designs and the uh, marketing campaigns. It was really fun, but I was a contractor. I wasn't paid that well. So I went to work for a regional distributor in Northern California who distributed um, 
tubes and tires and chains and hard parts and that was that was again another foray into the working with the dealers more and being involved in the in the the dealer network in Northern California. And but you I was can feeling, drop a name. You can say who they were. Well, they're not around anymore, but that was Bennett Distribution. Okay, I know yep. Bennett. Uh, Jeff Bennett, um, yeah. who is an awesome guy and introduced me to a lot more people in the industry. All along the way, as I'm sure you, you know, I kept meeting more people and, and, and you know growing my network and being more and more and, involved. And the important thing with this industry, and people who are not in it don't understand, you have to be out there. People have yeah. to know who you are and get used to your face. Right. <laughs> um, Lee gave me the most lovely greeting after we haven't met in four years, five yeah, years. And she remembered me instantly. <laughs> yeah. So this is how this industry works. So you're getting your name out there. Yes, yes. You've done the distribution. You've yep. done the exhaust. You've done yep. the chain and hard parts. Then I wanted to do something. And I was feeling creatively stifled, though. I, that's always Marketing has been a big part of my background, too. You're quite a restless yeah, soul, Yeah, I was. You? I was. So I went to work for uh, for Cycle Gear Corporate in right. their um, in their marketing department. Again, I went back to doing, doing promotions and events. And that was... That was really fun, but I found again I didn't like that corporate environment. I was I didn't like working in an office. That really right. sucked. So I decided I wanted to get back out and do you know more outside sales. So I started working for Helmet House, uh, which is a wholesale distributor I of know apparel, those guys. Yeah. apparel, accessories, and helmet. Their their um, big brands are Showy, Tourmaster, Cortex. So that was so much fun, and I felt that I kind of found my niche at that point. Really doing helmets and apparel. I loved it, loved it, loved it. I got headhunted and stolen. Uh, from by Tucker Rocky, which is kind of their big competitor. Uh, Helmet House wasn't super happy when I left because I was selling showy and I went to go sell a rye. So <laughs> then I was the I was the helmet and apparel specialist for Northern California for Tucker. So um, working with the guys at Arai, I, I uh, the wealth of knowledge that they provided to me is was just incomparable. I loved it so much. It was a great opportunity expanding my knowledge base, expanding my dealer network base, getting to know more and more of the getting dealers. Getting your the, face out there. Exactly, yeah. And then um, uh, then this opportunity, I heard about the opportunity at Suzuki and kind of bringing it back again to full circle. Um, I've always, since I got into the industry, my goal was to work for a manufacturer. That has always been what I've dreamed of doing. And you told <laughs> me that, but... Yes. But, and I know, as we're doing this interview right now, I know we're surrounded by Suzuki people, yes. <laughs> but I want to put you on the spot. Sure. There's a commonality yeah. about your previous jobs that you've expressed a dissatisfaction with, and that's the corporate culture. Right. And Suzuki is every inch. Very much so. The corporate culture. I've worked for Japanese companies, sure. and I know the corporate face and the corporate product is extremely important to that. So how do you make that balance between being Lee yes. and reducing Lee to be part of this giant corporation? Well, this is another thing that you said earlier and that you were looking for as well. I am the bridge. I'm the bridge between the dealers and the manufacturer now. Right. So this is this is my role. My role is to be, I, I again, I'm a representative for Suzuki, but the dealers are... The, also the people who I'm representing. So um, I'm, I am working to bridge the gap between the corporate world and the in the trenches selling the product role. And that really is what are you, works are for Are you me. good at your job, Lee? I'm great at my job. I know you are. I knew the answer to that before I even asked you. So look, we're going to wind it up. Yes. What a great story. I told you. Oh, you did. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. And this is like a little Easter egg for you. Oh, okay. 
I want you... We haven't got all the Suzuki products sure, here, sure. but we've got enough. Yes. Pick your favorite one and tell me about it. And... Tell me why I should buy it. Well, my favorite one is in here, which would be the SV650. Yes, well, yeah. I know. So <laughs> That's my personal favorite. So but. what we've got right here is we've got the old standby. We've got the Hayabusa, yes. which is the size of an aircraft carrier. <laughs> we've got the new, the GSX... S GT. Yes, GSX S one thousand GT. Gran Turismo. This is the uh, GT Plus. This is GT Plus. So this has got all the bells and whistles. Yeah. And we've got the old standby, the Jixa one thousand S. Yes. Which is the naked Street Fighter. I think. I think what we're going to do is, I think we're going to swap out, put Jim in because he's interested in this bike. What I want you to do is, and I know it's a little bit out of your wheelhouse. But I know you can do it. Sure. So Jim here is genuinely, he's got 15 grand burning a hole in his pocket. Okay. And <laughs> got it right there. He, he's got his wallet out right now. So um, do your best. Sell him that GT. Oh, sure. I will. Gladly. All right. So Naked Jim back here with Lee. And as threatened, we are going to do a product review of the new Jixxer Sport Touring Bike or Grand Touring, however it might be. So... Just for a little context, I am in the market for a new bike. You know, I, I commute daily on a FC1 2012. I love the bike. The only reason I'm in the market for something new is to take advantage of the new technology for safety. I commute over a mountain road that is a, a fun racetrack, but when you're commuting, you can come around a turn for unexpected things. So I, I'm trying to take advantage of that, um, but also it would be my sport touring bike. So Because, you know, once you get up into the, the kind of the the inline four power um, of the leader bikes, it's its a bit intoxicating and it's hard to, to put away. So anyway, I'm hoping Lee can kind of walk me through why this would be my great commuter, fun bike for the twisties, but then go on vacation to Southern California. All right, so this is our brand new for 2022 GSX-S 1000 GT Plus. So as you mentioned, it is kind of based on the GSXR platform, the GSXR 1000. Very proven. A very proven, very storied, very loved uh, motorcycle motor. Um, it's it's uh, obviously a kind of a go-to for a lot of different platforms. Which is cool. They didn't mess with something that worked. Right, exactly. Uh, they did tune it a little bit differently. So you're getting a little bit more low and mid-end in this and a little bit less horsepower. But it sounds like for somebody like you, you maybe don't need that super top-end speed. Well, and this will give you plenty of power for what you do need. I know this gives me more power than my FZ1, <laughs> and the FZ1 is plenty. So I don't spend a lot of time at ten and 11,000 RPM, but yeah, but plenty of power. Jim, you and I have both talked about the difference when we went from our 650s to leader bikes. You didn't use it often, but when you needed it, say, to get out of a situation on the freeway, it made all the difference. So I agree with you. I think leader bike, not for the speed, but for the maneuverability is important. Yeah, because if you commute and if people that that commute, they get it. It's like stopping is not really your option. So what you need is nimbleness and and quick speed. And that's definitely a safety feature. Yeah, to keep it safer. Along with, with cool braking. I'm sorry I interrupted. <laughs> That's yes. okay. So, so this bike um, is is the newest edition of our GSXS 1000F, which was our first touring ver- version of this bike that we introduced. Um, and basically, it was the naked bike with a windscreen and a fairing, and that was really the only main difference. But now they've completely redesigned this bike to be a touring bike specifically sport tourer so uh, the first thing that they did starting from the rear of the bike was they um, beefed up the subframe and the suspension so it is really truly intended to be a very comfortable very capable 
very able two-up riding bike. So, so if I want to throw my girl on the back with yep. a little bit of some luggage and head down the Pacific Coast Highway to Santa yep. Barbara, I'm in good shape. You are definitely in good shape. Nice. Um, and then, of course, they added the, the hard bags here, which you've got on the bike as well. They are easy to remove, uh, lockable, large enough to, to hold a full face helmet on each side. So that's a big thing too. If you're, you know, if you are traveling and you're or, or commuting and you want to have your helmet locked up, you don't want to carry it in with you. So, so my, my current GVs on my FC1, when I do put them on, um, yeah, it has to be the top case. It will yeah. not fit in the side case. Yep. Well, it'll fit in the side cases on this one. Um, they also added a quick shifter. So this Ooh. is a bi-directional quick shifter for up or down shifts, which is really convenient. We talked about this a little bit earlier in depth, and apparently, the, and I would love to try it, the quick shifter is apparently modern Marvel technology. So literally, once you get the bike going, yeah. you're done with the clutch. Yeah, as long as you know how to time the RPMs, you're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, but, but I think the bike has a technology where it kind of takes the timing of the RPMs out of it for you. So. Anyway, I it's thought definitely that was cool, forgiving. It's yeah. definitely forgiving for sure. Um, they also added a much larger gas tank than the previous version. It's got a five-gallon gas tank on it, which is kind of unusual for for a bike its yeah. size. Um, yeah. Usually, you only find that on the big touring bikes, but uh, this is also less than 500 pounds too. So, which is a big deal. It really is, um, and the seat height is 31.8 inches. So it's it's a more rideable bike than I think a lot of other bikes are in this category. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you an example. I had a dealer who had a customer who was very interested in this bike and they had a unique situation. It was a husband and a wife. They both rode. They wanted a bike that either one of them could ride or that they could ride together. And there aren't very many bikes that would fit the bill for that. So I think this one was an ideal choice for them and I think it would be for somebody in that situation too. Yeah, and it sets up nicely for me. I mean, I'm 6'1", six, I'm six you know, 205, something like that. And a lot of the, the more sporty bikes I get cramped up on. Mm -hmm. But this one, it has a low seat height, so it's yep. easy to get the feet down, obviously. But then when I get my feet up on the pegs, it's very comfortable. So I think right. I could do, you know, a bunch of hours on this without too much. The ergonomics are super comfortable. It's got a lower handlebar, a little bit more forward foot pegs than the more sporty version. Uh, so it's, it's definitely comfortable for the long haul. Also has cruise control. So yes. if you are planning on if you are planning on doing some long distance riding, the cruise control is really ideal and it, it's definitely a cool feature. Um, and then also the, the new thing that we're really excited about on this model and this comes on the GT Plus, which is the luggage version. The GT, which is the version that does not come stock with the luggage, but you can add it as an aftermarket if you choose to. And then also our GSX-S1000, which is the, the naked version. They all uh, have this beautiful, full-color TFT display. Uh, so we're really getting into new technology with the TFT, the thin film technology. Um, it's beautiful. The color contrast is really great. Even in bright sunlight, it has two versions. It can be in a black background or a white black background. So it's really easy to see if you're riding at night or in the daytime. But the coolest thing about it is that this is the first bike that we've introduced with uh, smartphone connectivity. So we have our own Suzuki MySpin app that you connect to it. It's super simple. The user interface is just, it's very, very easy to use. And it's intended to be like a, you know, Apple, um, Apple uh, CarPlay or Android Auto where you just connect your phone and then you put it in your pocket and you forget about it and you just interact with the dash which is super safe for something that you're looking for. Easy to change on the fly because there's not a lot of menus. You just do the select and then you're done. Uh, it's very, very user friendly. And then we do have the USB port here too so okay. you can plug in your device if you need to awesome. and not worry about it. You know one thing I noticed talking about the, uh, the interface, the yeah. display, we looked at it earlier. You can't see it obviously it's on podcast but super clear a lot of adjustability to brightness and things yeah. like that. But one thing I like, when you put your thumb on the controls, we were riding Indian Roadmasters last week. Mm. Had all the bells and whistles, but there were so many buttons, you yeah. kind of were kind of looking for things a little bit. 
this on your thumb, it feels like a TV remote control. Yeah. You really, you're, you're only moving your thumb about an inch around to control everything on the panel. So I enjoyed that. So because yep. if you can change things on the fly, you don't really want to be looking down a whole lot. No, so, it's super intuitive. It, yeah. it really feels very comfortable and very easy to, to, to use as you are riding, and that's how it's intended to be. Suzuki, safety is there has always been their number one number one concern with all of their motorcycles of course we want speed of course we want performance of course we want good looks but safety is number one yeah and this is a good looking bike and yeah. it looks good with the luggage on it but we took the luggage off earlier you take the luggage off the bike it's a, it's like a, a different looking motorcycle i think it looks great and if somebody doesn't want that luggage they can buy the the, the version that the just the regular gt version that does not come stock with the luggage for about 500 dollars less right on so i think this is the only one in america right now yeah <laughs> just about <laughs> when yeah. can i when can i lay down my hard-earned cash they'll be, they'll, be, they'll be showing up in dealerships um, uh, later this spring. So um, we're guessing probably April, May. Cool. Right yeah. on. Well, hey, thanks for walking us through the bike. No problem. Uh, check it out online. It's a beautiful-looking bike sitting on it, super comfortable, and I'm sure it's a rocket. So right on. Thank we'll see you. you out there. Thank you. Thank you. What is it, the big yeah. Greatest of all time, Ricky Carmichael. <laughs> She was nervous. That wasn't that bad, was it? Huh? That was simple. What's up, you guys? Everybody good? Good to see everybody back, yeah? You guys are quiet, that's it. Yeah? yeah. It's been a little bit, a little bit of time, and uh, we're all back here. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Looks like we're getting back to some normalcy. And uh... Well, there you go. Uh, you guys, I, what do you think? So now that we've walked the floor, we've met all these people, seen things, done things, I want to ask each of you, what's been one of the highlights of AIM Expo? Well, you know what my answer is going to be before we start. Suzuki. Um, and it was very, very interesting that Suzuki were the only mainline Japanese manufacturer who were actually represented at the show, and I Thing that speaks volumes. They're serious players. They're the good guys. Yeah. How about you, John? Well, uh, of course, I, and I'm not just saying this, being with the Misfits, it's been fun for three days and craziness and underwear dancing and all this, all this, <laughs> stuff, all this stuff you'd expect from the Misfits. Um, but above that at the show, you know, one of the things I really liked a lot was um, some of the small entrepreneurs that are out there doing products and just trying to find a way into the, uh, into the industry and earn a living. I love Made in America products. I just love seeing young, you know, these people start these businesses and thrive. Yeah. How about you, Jim? Yeah, it's kind of the same uh, theme all weekend is community, <clears throat> you know, whether it's the Misfits or an event like this, you see people of all shapes, sizes, colors, creeds, etc., and we all find common ground so easily talking about motorcycles. And and again, I think that's the part of it, right? The motorcycles are are pieces of iron and steel, but when the human elements added, then the stories become the interest. And for me, that's the fun part, and I think that's why we do this stuff. What about you, Lisa? Thank you for asking. Um, yeah, you know, it's the same thing. AIM Expo, they canceled it last year. This is an event we come to uh, to, to see people in the industry. The smallest one they've ever had. A lot of things were canceled. A lot of people didn't show up. But you know what? It's still the people that we know that we run into, that we see at different events. It's always fun, like a reunion. And then each time we tend to meet more people and make more friendships and uh, and also... We have listeners that find us. 
right? <clears throat> Everywhere we go, there's great listeners that come out. So that was really a highlight. But honestly, yeah, the biggest thing is, even though to some people, AIM Expo is a little bit of a bust, we bring the party. We have fun. Always. Tra- is- traveling with misfits. You can't go wrong. And that on, is our reputation. And on that note, I got a bunch of dough burning a hole in my pocket right now <laughs> and some steaks to eat and some seafood towers to look yeah. at. And some um, burlesque to watch. No, later. no, we're not talking about that, remember? Oh, we're not sorry. Talking about that. So thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And if, you know, you're going to go out to an event, um, make sure you... Look for a misfit. You never know if you're you going to see You never know where we're going to show up. You know, anytime a neighborhood needs dragging down, we'll enter it. All right. On that note, let's get out of here. Thanks, everyone. This is Liza. I'm a darling. Stumpy John. Make it Jim, son. And we are out of here. Cool, cool. Viva cool. Las Vegas. Yeah.